Welcome back to the Film89 podcast. I'm Sky and I'm still one of the editors over at film89.co.uk and for this, our 43rd episode, we have the return of two of our most popular co-hosts from previous episodes. First of those is a filmmaker, film critic, seasoned podcaster, Bon Vivant and general man about town. Having recently fled the United States to avoid being put on trial for suspected war crimes, he now skulks around the streets of his newly adopted home of Amsterdam. (laughs) It is, of course, the venerable Mr. Bill Scurry. Bill, welcome back. I say cesium salami. (laughs) I'm also joined by someone who's become a full-time contributor and valued member of the extended Film 89 writing team. He's an expert on the subject of comic books, a rampant cinephile, an expert on all things film and television related. And tonight, he'll also be wearing the hat of Quizmaster, as Bill and I go head-to-head to to see who knows more about our, our chosen subject matter for this episode. It is, of course, the brilliant Mr. John Arminio. John, welcome back. Aurelia Baloney! See, guys, I preferred the first version before the audio (laughs) fucked up. Damn it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And tonight we'll be covering a franchise that in many ways has left an indelible mark on the childhood of all three of us. Uh, We're going into full-on nostalgia mode and all thoughts of objectivity may have to go out of the window as tonight we're going to be reminiscing and discussing our love of the Transformers, both the toy line, the accompanying animated series, and in particular... The 1986 film Transformers the Movie. Now, Bill, I maybe foolishly uh, set a challenge for us a while back when a Transformers episode was first mooted to see who knows the most about the robots in disguise. And uh, John has suggested that before we dig deep into Transformers lore and possibly uncover things which uh, he may be covering his, in his questions, uh, he's got a little quiz for us. So, Bill, are you ready to uh, beat me soundly? <laughs> Oh, give yourself some credit, Sky. I think I think we're on equal footing here. But yes, I'm I'm ready to take on all comers. Uh, uh, me Grimlock say, execute them. So, John, what kind of format is this uh, quiz going to take? Okay, I, as things always happen with my nerdy pursuits, I kind of overdid it a little bit, but whatever. Uh, I have twenty questions, and then a question I'm going to ask both of you. Um, they are of varying difficulty and varying topics. Some of them have the opportunity for bonus points. So, so are you guys ready to begin? This question pertains directly to Transformers the movie, and it is a little bit of an easier one, I think, uh, for you two experts. All right. What is a species slash race of sentient robots that populate this planet of junk, and who is their leader? Oh, that's the Junkions, and their leader is Rekgar. Correct. Who named Bill Optimus Prime? That would be um, Alpha Trion. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant uh, in <laughs> uh, the actual human being. <laughs> that oh, the actual human being. I, th- I think that was Bob Budiansky, right? No, it was Denny O'Neill. Denny O'Neill. Damn it. <sighs> okay. That's a tough uh, one. Yeah, so when Jim Shooter was tasked with creating um, by Hasbro uh, backstories for these characters, he first went to Denny O'Neill. 
uh, Danny O'Neill did some very brief work on the characters and said, uh, give it to somebody else. And then eventually made it to Bob Booty. Yes, yes. I think you should get a point for that. No, no, no. <laughs> this is a fair fight. Sky's up one to nothing. Go back to him now. Sky, another Transformers movie question. What is the last line of dialogue spoken by Optimus Prime in the movie? Nothing carefully. Oh, uh, do not grieve. Uh, soon I shall be one with the Matrix. No. No. Till all are one. Oh, till all are one. Oh. I am being a technical douchebag because at the end of the film, when oh, Rodimus Prime gets Prime. the Matrix, you get... Force Ghost Prime say Rise Rodimus Prime. Oh, good you question. Pen- yeah, that was a trick one. I like that. Very good. Oh, you, you, you Pennsylvania prick. I swear to God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. All right, Bill. Name the two F-15 Decepticons that are not Starscream uh, seen in More Than Meets the Eye. And what is that body type called? The body type. Okay, well, that's Skywarp and Thundercracker. The body type, are they Interceptors or are they Tomcats? They're called Seekers. Seekers, okay. All right, you can take a half point off for that, yes. Yeah, that, that was going to be one of the two-point questions, so you do get one uh, point. One point. Okay, good, good, good. All right, Sky. This is, this is a uh, two-part question because the second part is harder. Uh, what race... Does the multi-faced creature that sentences Hot Rod and Cup to death with the utterance of innocence belong? The Quintessons. Yes. Now, can you name the names of three of the faces? <sighs> there are multiple yeah, mu- there are yeah. faces on this, so if you name any one of those, I will accept. Oh, God. Uh, judgment. Uh, laughter. Uh, That's two. Laughter. Oh, damn it! Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! All open. Right, time's up. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, the other two were would have been uh, doubt, or the other three, uh, bitterness and death. Oh, yeah. why, didn't I, why didn't I get death? Come on. Good question. Good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah. Bill. Yes. Complete this immortal Optimus Prime aphorism. There's a thin line between being a hero and being a blank. Oh, man. There's a thin line between being a hero and being a blank. Uh, I have to punt on this one. I'm going to say being a leader. A memory. Yeah, a memory. Oh, right. I just watched that episode. Yeah, it's, it. it's from, isn't it from one of the first three episodes? Yeah, it's from yeah, More Than Meets the Eye, yeah. part, part two or part three. Yep, yeah. you got me. You got me. Yep. Oh, I'm uh, I'm sorry. I gotta go, Sky. I gotta go with another difficult one. Okay. The the randomness of my very complex uh, question picking system is judge overall. Name three G1 Constructicons and their combined form. Oh, I'll go for all of them. Uh, long haul Mixmaster, Hook, Bone Crusher, Scrapper, Scavenger, and a combined form Devastator. Whammy. That is. Good. Excellent work. Yep. They're my favorite combiners. Yep. Nice. OG, first is best. Bill. Yes. What is the name of the god of the Transformers, the sibling of Unicron? This is from Uh, the uh, Marvel Comics continuity. Yeah. Is this Primus, I believe? Yes. Yes. Okay, here we go. Uh, Sky, name one of Cliffjumper's alternate modes. 
Uh, he turns into a... Well, do you want to know the model of car, or...? Yes, please. Oh, damn it, cliff jumper. What does he turn into? It is... Ah, it's a model of car that doesn't actually look like what he turns into. Is it a Porsche? Yes. What's the other one? Uh, he, at some point, um, he will turn into a Suzuki Swift and a Mitsubishi Starion. Oh, right. If so, you in, had, uh, If you had uh, said a Porsche 924, I would have given you a bonus ah, point. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah, because uh, he totally looks like a Porsche 924 in More Than Meets the yeah, Eye. Sure. <laughs> Thanks, Japanese animators and, uh, uh, you know, California uh, uh, character modelers. No problem with that. All right, Bill. Yes. When Hasbro bought the toy line that would become Transformers from Takara, what was the super cool original name for Soundwave? Oh, man. Oh, super cool original name. John, I feel like you're, you're saving your hardballs up to just deliver right to my chin. Ah, oh, super cool original name. Uh, I'm guessing it wasn't Sony Walkman or, or Discman at this point. I'm going to no. say, no, it wasn't. I'm going to say it was, uh, again, I'm going to punt. I'm going to say headphones guy. I don't got it. It, it was, you're close. Cassette man? Cassette man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it loses something in translation, I think. Bit. All right, Sky. According to Megatron, Starscream couldn't lead a blank? Androids to, to a, a picnic? Yes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> because I guess oh. androids love going to picnics. Uh, <laughs> Do androids eat electric sheep at picnics? <laughs> I love those two. Anyway. All right. Bill. Oh, God, I'm sorry. This is another hard one. Name an Autobot Peter Cullen voiced that is not Optimus Prime. All right. Definitely Ironhide uh, for starters. I'll give you yes. that. And if you can name me a Decepticon, I'll give you a bonus point. A Decepticon. Uh, oh, boy, I got Peter. I got uh, uh, Frank Welker for a bunch. Yeah, there's there's an obvious one that I'm not plucking out. Peter Cullen. Uh, oh, probably probably one of the Constructicons, too. But I can't I can't come to mind. What, what do you got for me? What, uh, I, I'm gonna Wingspan and Slug Slinger. OK, that was a little later mm. in the later, a little later in the run. But sure. All right. Sky. Who wrote the original Generation 1 animated series theme song? Oh, crap. Damn it. Um, oh, do you know, don't, I think I'm going to have to pass. Sorry, John. All right. Uh, Clifford Ford Kinder and Anne Bryant. Ah, so, uh, no. I don't I think I would have Kinder done Kinder and that. Bryant. There's the American Songbook right there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's that 30 seconds has lasted 30 years. So it has, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, All right, Bill. Who has the first line of dialogue in Transformers the movie? Uh, the first line of dialogue is going to be um, Granix. Yeah, yes, I'll give that to you. It's, okay. it's Cranix with a Cranix. K. Oh, is but. it? Okay, okay, Cranix. Sky, in the Marvel Comics continuity. Oh, shit. <laughs> why were the Dinobots imprinted with dinosaur forms by the art computer in the first place. Uh, because when the art crashed into Mount St. Helens four million years ago, it sent out a probe uh, in order to, I believe, to combat, uh, I can't remember what the threat was, but it went out and scanned uh, local life forms and thus created the Dinobots. But why, but why four million years ago were there dinosaurs around? Yeah, good question. 
A little bit of a continuity error, I think, maybe. Uh, the the key to that was the Savage Land. Oh. The, our computer found that they were the dominant species in the Savage Land, and so therefore, Dinobots. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh. You know, that's still uh, a better origin story than the cartoon got. Oh, yeah, yeah. Y- yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, like, found fossils. Bill. Yes. What was the gun model for Megatron in the original Hasbro toy line? So what actual gun was he supposed to transform into? He was a Walther P-38, correct? Yes. yes he was. So that ties it up. Oof. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's a oh, heat now. we got a game going on here. All right, Sky. What were the two Japanese toy lines that inspired slash preceded the Transformers made by Takara? It was Diaclone and Microchange, both by Takara. Yes. Nice. Nice. Oof. Bill, in what episode uh, did a hologram of a giant Autobot allow Optimus Prime to blast Devastator dead center, causing him to disengage into separate Constructicons? Uh, is that, uh, oh, I'm going to say Heavy Metal War? Uh, yes. Episode 11? Good. Yeah, okay. That may that uh, may appear in my top five, by the way. That might be why I know that, but go on. Uh, Sky, in the cartoon continuity, what was Starscream's occupation before joining the Decepticons? Oh, jeez. Uh, it was something completely innocuous, wasn't it? Something that... <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> He was the rabbi. rabbi. Yeah. Oh, Starscream. Oh, this is going to drop me behind, isn't it? Oh, I'm going to have to pass. He was a scientist. Oh, shit. Damn it. I used to know that. Long ago, I used to know that. Nice. All right. Last one before we get to the final question. All right, Bill, who is the narrator for the Transformers? Oh, he is the man I have in my notes here in all caps. A man by the name of Victor Caroli. Yes. Now, there's only one point difference, but because I want to have a climactic ending to uh, this quiz, the last question is going to be worth two points. Mm. <laughs> so, they're a winner. All right. Mortal voice actor Frank Welker, who obviously voiced Megatron, many others, has been voicing characters, especially animal characters, since the 70s, one of the most legendary performers in the field. According to IMDb, how many acting credits does he have? The closest one gets the points. Closest without going over? Price is right style? Nope, just bare closest. Oh, okay, okay. Wow, tough one. All right. In his entire career? Entire career. Oh, I, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll let Bill go first. Ah, you, you Welsh bastard. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say, oh boy. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go under. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna allow Sky to shoot over, and we'll we'll, we'll I'm I'm gonna say somewhere six hundred and twenty-five. Oh, I'm gonna go seven hundred and fifty. The correct answer is eight hundred eight. Sky wins, takes oh. everything. Oh well, no, I'm no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not gonna claim a win there because no, that's. Yeah, some of Bill's questions, were, I, I would have, wouldn't have had a chance in hell of getting. So, yeah, I, Bill, you're, you're equally your deserving. Fi- your fingers are raking the felt of every chip on it right now. I see what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> can we split the matrix of leadership between you two? We, yeah, we can. We can. I, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm going to concede that to, to Bill because I know he's, you know, if we, if we want 100 <laughs> questions, if we want 100 questions, he definitely beat me. 
Oh man, good job, John. That's a, that's a tremendous Thank job you. by you, my friend. Excellent, excellent, uh, uh, six, excellent job with the task that you've been given. That's a tough spot. And if any of you out there, Transformers experts are listening, accuse me of taking a couple questions straight from the toys that made this episode of Transformers. You are fucking correct. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> Let me do my research. So, guys. Uh, Transformers, starting with you, Bill, uh, take me back to your earliest memories of this franchise and, and the effect it had on a young William Scurry. Well, uh, it, the commercials showed up on TV for the toy line first, and um, they were crude, and it just had some some young kids playing with the figures. Uh, nonetheless, I had been screwing around with, with tra- uh, not Transformers, I'd been screwing around with Star Wars and He-Man before that point. So I think Transformers comes on the scene in 85. G.I. Joe comes out in 84. Or actually, G.I. Joe, the cartoon, comes out in 85 as well, I think, earlier than this, but not too much earlier. So I had been playing with these hominid figures. Seeing these things on TV, it's like, oh, man, I don't know what this is. These are vehicles. These look like these um, Japanese import toys that would show up at the local flea market on Long Island, uh, around where I grew up. It wasn't until I went into, uh, I, I forget which store it was, I saw them on the shelf. I saw the the mini cars. I saw Cliff Jumper, speaking of which, I saw Bumblebee. And I was struck first by, oh, man, these are so small compared to what you see on TV. And then I looked a few pegs away, and I saw Optimus Prime. I saw the bigger box. I saw Megatron. And I was like, what are these? This is a completely new ball game. We have never seen anything like this in on the American toy shelf before. Uh, so after from 85 onward, every single you talk about my birthday is in June and my and Christmas is on December. So that was like in addition to whatever G.I. Joe's I was getting, I was making sure that there were Constructicons, that there were Dinobots. It came on quickly because there were toys uh, and the cartoon. I bought into it immediately because it was the same animation company, the same brand that brought you G.I. Joe. It was the same theming. Everything about it was a cousin to G.I. Joe, not not even withstanding the fact that Marvel Comics uh, was publishing a, a monthly book around the same time, too. So for all of the wall breaking around the Reagan era that they'd done in terms of making afternoon TV in terms of toy commercials, that which is exactly what you know United States television was trying not to do through the 70s, it worked perfectly. It got me hooked into a toy line, and I watched the cartoon, and I read the comic, and I played with the toys, and it became a fanaticism because, I mean, here I am. I'm, I'm an alcoholic adult still doing Cobra Commander memes on, on you know, the internet. And Transformers is, is like wedded to my imagination. And I'm still sitting here proselytizing Transformers the movie, which was, yes, the height of 1986 culture. But in some ways, things got never got any better than that for me. I'm just living in the shadow of, of that summer. John, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, I was born... In 1984, which is the year of the Transformers, the show premiered. So I've, my childhood was kind of being forced to back into the Transformers and trying to find them, find them kind of past their heyday. I do remember, you know, my parents being very not happy with shows like G.I. Joe just because it was just a bunch of dudes shooting at each other. But there was something about the Transformers that made it, like, okay for their five-year-old son to, to watch. Like, they're just something much more human and like empathetic about them uh, than even a lot of the other like humanoid 
uh, cartoon characters like He-Man or J.I. Joe. Uh, and I just always found them very endearing. And, like, first priority for any, like, toy was always a Transformer. And if I couldn't find one or, or if my parents couldn't find one, it was always second choice. I really just gravitated immediately towards the movie when I discovered that it exists. Like, there was just something so magical about it. Like, I know that it was a marketing choice to kill Optimus Prime. And I know that a lot of people from my generation have some sort of kinder trauma at his death. But for me, it was always something so unique in the shows that I was watching that like nobody else had like the courage to kill a character like that. And it made me sort of fascinated with that world and wanting to continue to see it build and build and build. And it, it never re really did because the Transformers was built to sell toys. But that movie is always a sort of like 84 minutes of magic where we where somehow marketing interests contributed to telling this like amazing <laughs> animated film. So it's it's so all that stuff has always fascinated me. And I think even as a kid the idea that like these guys that could transform into vans and ambulances could somehow scrape by and win over, you know, F15s and guns. Uh that always really interested me and and really endeared me to the Autobots. John, what year did you find the movie, by the way? I'm curious. I have no idea. It's somewhere in the nebulous arena of my, like, pre-seven-year-old childhood. Oh, okay. Okay, not too far afterwards. Coming up around 1990 or so, maybe. Something like that? Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. Okay. Some wonderful day, I came across a VHS at a video store and said, this is the thing I need to see right now. There you go. Well, guys, let me, let me kind of give you a little bit of a snapshot of the kind of UK toy sort of retail situation circa 1984 now around about the time transformers kind of just came from nowhere and dropped in the uk i was well into uh, masters of the universe at the time which had i think dropped the previous year in 1983 in the uk we've got um, a retail outlet called argos now argos is a store that you walk in and instead of you know, having aisles of stock that you would go and view. It's got tables with these kind of catalogs fixed to the tables, which are laminated and you flick through them. Uh, there's a, like a pencil that, and you've got these little bits of paper, which you write down the, 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 the item number and the quantity that you want. You flick through the catalog, find whatever you want. You take it up to the cashier. Cashier gives you a till receipt. You then go to a collection point, And then in a part of the store that you can't see, I would imagine in a big stock room at the back of the store, they select the items that you've bought and bring them out to you. Now, it's kind of like a, a, a precursor to Amazon. It is still going today. Argos would release every spring and summer and every autumn winter. So twice a year, it would release a spring and summer catalog and then an autumn winter catalog. And in the autumn winter 1984 catalog, Argos had these toys, which kind of came from nowhere. This is even before I'd seen the animated series. And it had these four Transformers in it. It had Optimus Prime, Soundwave, obviously with Buzzsaw, Sideswipe, and Thundercracker. So that was the only range or, or the only toys from that range that was available when Transformers kind of burst, you know, onto the UK toy scene. Later on, toys like Starscream, Skywarp, Megatron, Jazz, and all the rest of the Autobots came out. But those first four, when I first saw them, I thought, wow, you know, what are these? These look, you know, incredible. I, you know, I, I have to have them. And I think later on that Christmas, I'd asked my grandmother to get me Optimus Prime. Unfortunately, Optimus Prime sold out straight away and was completely unavailable. So luckily, an auntie of mine for my birthday, um, which was in the November before that Christmas, had secured me one of the last remaining sound waves she could find. Uh, so that was 
for me the greatest present I could have ever had. O- opened it <laughs> on my birthday, immediately got out of the packaging, was sat on the floor uh, before school playing with it, just thinking it was the most amazing thing. I was completely oblivious to what my mother was doing at the time. She was kind of rushing, trying to get everything ready for school. And as she walked past me, she stepped on Buzzsaw, which at the time wasn't in his cassette form. I transformed it into his Condor form, and she actually broke one of the legs off Buzzsaw no later than half an hour after I'd opened it. Damn. Ah, oh, you know, it was one of the most traumatic things I'd, I'd been through up until that point in my life. That was the first Transformer I had. Luckily then, later on, my grandmother was able to actually get me Optimus Prime, and then it was kind of opening the floodgates, and from that point onwards, I was just completely addicted to these things. Then, I think uh, a few months after that Argos catalogue came out, or a few weeks even, the uh, Transformers cartoon started airing on television. That, to me, was like catnip. I, I loved Master of the Universe. I, I was a big Star Wars fan, or certainly a fan of the toys by that point, um, although you know my, my love of the films hadn't kind of solidified. But Transformers, for me, was the first thing as a child that I ever became kind of obsessed with. And I, I, I was obsessed with Transformers for the longest time. And this was something that all my friends knew. They all liked Transformers, but I was kind of the one that was just... If there was any information in the schoolyard to be sort of peddled about the latest Transformers and about which Transformers were available in the UK, because one of the big problems we had, we never had the whole range of Transformers released in the UK. It, it was just a crazy thing that even if you look at the, the five Dinobots, Swoop was never available in the UK. And there were no other there was no other way to get him. You know, I I had a, an uncle or great uncle who was kind of like a bit of a father figure to me that he was in the RAF and he would travel about the world and he would often source toys which are unavailable in the UK and, and get them to me before anyone else. Um, I always remember the kind of uh, I think they were maybe eight inch tall eighteen figures, which came with a load of accessories, which I was the you know, the first kid in my school to ever have those. But with the Transformers I, I, you know, I didn't have the same kind of luck, and he wasn't able to source a lot of the Transformers that we just couldn't get in the UK. Uh, characters like Shockwave, you just couldn't get them unless you were lucky enough to come across a small independent toy store that had somehow got hold of US or or European stock. So, so many of these Transformers in the UK were so hard to come by, and when you know, you were buying the Transformers, and they would come with a little pack-in sort of fold-out gatefold catalogs. You'd look at those, and you'd just be pouring over those catalogs until he fell apart in your hand for hours because so many of these toys were unavailable and that kind of added to the mystique and the overall kind of addictive quality of these toys you know the level of detail with the characters the fact that they went to so much trouble to give these characters detailed bios you know they all had individual characteristics personalities abilities it was it was a level of detail in toys that i had never seen and it just completely blew me away i, I was just hooked yeah, actually, it's funny you mentioned that because those I mentioned Bob Budiansky before. Bob Buda, who was one of the Marvel Comics editors, actually did write those. He was tasked by Denny O'Neill. He was outsourced. He came up with that stuff for Hasbro. So there was a brain trust of comic book people who also contributed back to the packaging in terms of um, coming up with the personalities and the power sets of these characters, which is why the Transformers were on paper so well realized. I, I love those file cards too, because they just, you know, that's what furnished the actual personalities. You read that and there were the guys you had in front of you. They told you what Thundercracker's motivations were. They told you, you know, who, um, you know, Starscream was. There was your personalities. Have a guess in pounds what the price was of Soundwave at the time when it dropped in 1984. 
Oh boy. Um, I don't know pounds, but in dollars, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it was uh, 24, $24. So somewhere about, I don't know, 20 pounds, 19 pounds, something like that. Oh, I'm, I I, th- I was going to say much cheaper, like nine ninety nine or something. Yeah, it was actually it was actually eight pounds seventy five, and for Optimus Prime, it was eleven ninety five. Wow, that's crazy, man. What was your kind of experience with the cartoon, John? Obviously, you know, you came into it much later. For you know, yeah, Bill, Bill and I were there, for kind of ground zero. So, how how old do you think you were when you first saw the the Transformers animated series? Yeah, I was probably like f- five. Um, so it just very, very early in my childhood, I would catch it on reruns, you know, whenever I could. And so for me, the story of the Autobots as a kid growing up was very disjointed. Uh, so I, I think it was hard for me to know like what generation was what and, you know, what was supposed to take place after the movie and, and before, because I, I didn't see the movie until like, you know, a- after like four, the four seasons had been completed. So it was just a matter of trying to catch them wherever I could and being disappointed when I couldn't find it on my, you know, Saturday morning lineup anymore. Wow. Bill, what, what, do you share the, the kind of same nostalgic memory that I've got, which I, I've heard, you know, loads of people of, of my age kind of have had of going into a Toys R Us and just heading towards that Transformers aisle, which when you were, you know, a seven or eight-year-old kid just seemed like it was just vast and it was just filled from like floor to ceiling with Transformers and you would spend, you know, the best part of an hour, two hours, however long your parents would let you, just kind of pouring over these (laughs) things. Because to me, that is one of my defining childhood memories and something that I spent an inordinate amount of time doing. As much time as I spent playing with Transformers, I probably spent in various stores, Toys of RS of, you know, being the most prominent one in my memory, just looking at these toys and, and pouring over them and, and reading the bio cards and just, you know, just thinking, you know, which one of these am I going to put on my Christmas list? And it was just for me, pure nostalgic bliss. Yeah, I I don't know what the split of the listenership to this show is. I assume you have a. I always assume that there's a crop of younger people who probably were born in the late '80s and '90s, and then there must be a bunch of forty-year-olds like us. So our generation has a very uniform experience, which I will totally cop to what you just said. The catalog, you know, we didn't have to go to a store where it was like glued down to the counter. We it was sent to the houses and there's a, the chain in, in America was Sears uh, in the eighties was the big deal. And so the Sears, Sears, for instance, every Christmas would give out this thing called the wish book, which is a catalog of everything they were going to, uh, you know, advertise for Christmas. So I would pour over that thing until it was in tatters because I would see all the toy lines, much the same way as you did in Argus. And yes, the idea of going to a toy store and having this experience of looking on the shelf. Now, uh, I did not get that many Transformers because the price point was so much higher than I managed to earn an allowance or, or, you know, a birthday would maybe net me one Transformer, you know, one Dinobot, uh, a, a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of mini cars or something like that. It wouldn't get much more than that. So a lot of this was, um, you know, first of all, it was conspicuous consumption, but it was also like this upward mobility of thinking, what the hell would it take for me to get more of these things? I knew I would never see uh some of the bigger transformers i mean we did get shockwave in the house we did get optimus prime in the house um but i just realized there were so goddamn many of these things that Mm. i was going to have to look at that gatefold insert that pre-packed in checklist and just live on the pictures and wish and wonder and hope against all hope someday that i would get to touch them knowing full well that i wouldn't but i mean that's that's an experience that i mean not that people 
couldn't get toys. But the idea that you access a toy line, you access, you you would greed for it in that very specific way, obviously it doesn't exist anymore. But I, I know exactly what that tactile, sensory, you know, mem- uh, memory is of going in and seeing these things packed in the boxes in the shelf and just sort of pouring over it with greasy little hands and, and thinking, well, I, I can't buy this. I don't I literally don't have enough money to buy the Galvatron toy. I think that experience for me exactly mirrors my experience with the show because, you know, this was long before streaming. I just was prisoner to the programming schedules of, you know, Fox or ABC or whoever. And so I was greeting for more Transformers content the same way I was greeting for, you know, Transformers toys. And so the Transformers was this franchise that was a sort of like, like unattainable, like holy grail of cool kid shit. It it was aspirational. Yeah. yeah, Whereas, you know, G.I. Joe figures as neat as those like three and a half inch guys were, you know, they were like five bucks. And, you know, it, (laughs) it wasn't it wasn't exactly like a big deal if you know, Cobra Commander was broken in half, but, but if somebody broke the head off Optimus Prime, like, holy shit, uh, (laughs) I might never, ever get another one. John, I, I stole dimes from around the house. If I had, uh, 50 dimes, I could buy a G.I. Joe figure from the corner (laughs) drugstore, but to buy a transformer, it was a bigger buy-in. I would need something close to 15 to 20 us dollars to get something of any sort of decent uh, stroke. And that's why I, I, the G.I. Joe was here. G.I. Joe was in front of me that actually I shoplifted G.I. Joe's confession. I actually ripped them open and stuffed in my shorts in like 1985. That's how fiendish I was to get G.I. Joe's transformers. You couldn't do that with that was like, the gold toilet, you know, that was like a bidet. That was like some luxury item that was a whole nother thing. It And it remained that way. As much as many Transformers as I had, I didn't have nearly the fraction of them as I had uh, the spread on G.I. Joe's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's the G.I. Joe's, as, I, as I've said to you before, Bill. Now, G.I. Joe, uh, when it came over to the UK, was renamed Action Force. You know, I, I had quite a few G.I. Joe, oh, sorry, Action Force figures, but... For whatever reason, I think maybe because it was kind of more rooted in that sort of gung-ho American, you know, hoo-ha kind of military sort of idea, it never really caught on over here because by that point, Action Man, which kind of in, in, in many ways spawned G.I. Joe, you know, when, it, when they tried to kind of take that concept and, and shrink it down into these three and three-quarter inch figures, it, it kind of lost its cool factor. I think, yeah. you know, in large part because of the popularity of, you know, the, the similarly styled and sized Star Wars figures, which just were a phenomenon unlike any other. And, you know, as much as I've got fond memories of of Transformers, I've also got very fond memories of, of being in the same toy aisles as kind of looking at Star Wars figures in the years preceding 1984, you know, be, before I actually you know, moved my obsession from Star Wars on, onto Transformers. G.I. Joe was never as big a thing. It always was kind of seen as the lesser thing. And certainly the cartoon was just... You, know, you could buy VHS tapes of the cartoon, but I don't ever remember watching G.I. Joe on television. It was always, for me, it was Masters of the Universe, Transformers, and then later on Thundercats. But yeah, just G.I. Joe never took the same popularity. There was something about those toys that, like you say, you know, if, if I lost a, a Star Wars figure or if one got damaged, it wasn't the end of the world. Whereas Transformers were... They, it's hard to put a value on them at the time because it wasn't just the fact that they cost so much more than these three and three quarter inch action figures. It was oftentimes the rarity of them. Like I remember the difficulty in getting Megatron. Bearing in mind he was one of the core release Transformers. 
I actually remember that it was probably a year after the the first drop that I actually went into Tesco, which is kind of like a it's like our version of your Walmart with, with my uncle, and he he said, "Oh look, you know, I'm gonna go and do shopping for your grandmother. You just go to the toy aisle. I'll come and get you when I finished." He came back. He said to me. Before we go, anything you want? Immediately, I kind of went for the mini Autobots and, and, and you know, the little cassette tapes. And he said, no, no, anything. And at this point, I thought, my God, he's serious. And <laughs> my, you know, my hand instinctively reached onto that shelf without even looking and pulled Megatron off. And he went and looked at it. And my uncle, bearing in mind he was in the RAF, he used to teach uh, munitions firing automatically. His reaction was, oh, a gun, yeah. Yeah, you can have that, no problem. And at that point, I was thinking, holy shit, that's like seventeen ninety five. Uh, how am I going to explain this to my mother when I go home? She's going to be like, you know, why did you, you know, nag your uncle to get this for you? And, and he was more than willing to, you know, that was just pocket change for him. And I remember just going home thinking, holy shit, this is like the mother load. I've actually got Megatron. And when I showed my friends, it was they, they couldn't believe it. It was such a big thing that now, you know, you just think it, it's bits of metal and plastic. But back then, this was a huge thing. And it, it, these, these toys had a value that just went far beyond the, the sort of monetary value that you would attach to them. They were rosebuds. They were all fucking rosebuds. They were. You know? In 85, on June 15, 1985, my grandparents got me Snarl. And my aunt, by coincidence, got me uh, Slag. Uh, so on, on one birthday, I got two Autobots. And I, I felt like I won Miss America that day. Like, yeah. I can't believe it. I'm a legend in my own time. That not just one of these things, which it just hit the pegs, but this was two in one day. On one hoary, you know, low sun, beautiful, warm afternoon of your childhood. Memories would never be as brilliant as they were on that June of 85. And another kind of example to, to show how valuable these toys were. M my best friend growing up, he loved Transformers just as much as I did. The very first VHS I ever bought was the, the, th the first three episodes of the animated series condensed into kind of what they called at the time a feature-length film. It was called Arrival from Cybertron and it was more than meets the eye parts one, two, and three edited into this kind of seamless you know, 84-minute film. In fact, it may have even been less than I may have been 60-something minutes. That was the first VHS I ever had, and I, I wore that cassette tape out. Now, my best friend at the time, instead of buying that tape, he went and bought the next one that was released, which was called Megatron's Master Plan, which was uh, the double episode from, I think, later on in season one, maybe season two. Yeah, season one, yeah. Yeah, we, we always made sure that whatever toys or VHS cassettes we asked for that were Transformers-related, we never had any overlap. So whatever uh, Transformers I had, he made sure that he would get other ones, which I didn't have. So when we brought them together, we had as much Transformers as we could have between us without having any duplication because they were so scarce. And, you know, I always remember uh, he had Sludge and Grimlock and I had snarl maybe i had slag certainly didn't have swoop because like i said he wasn't available but there was like th this mentality that you you had to kind of pool your resources with your friends and we had another friend he was the same and and he would ask his parents and we, we would kind of collaborate on this and say right if you ask your mum and dad for this i'll ask for this and then you ask for that and then between us we'll have maybe all the dinobots there, there was a scarcity and there was a value placed upon these toys that i can't ever remember attributing to any other toy line yeah, and there was no duplication. Like, mm. uh, yeah, for whatever it's worth, that that's our memory. John, bask in this. Uh, you know, you're you're in the reflective Auburn glow yeah. of what it was like to be a child in '85. <laughs> I, I hope uh, we're conveying ourselves here. No, um, I'm actually having a great time listening. Uh, be, because I do not have that 
experience at all. I think my brothers were so uh, like territorial over their own toys. And so I was territorial as well. So we never shared as far as we until like, you know, the next year, then the toys became part of like the past toys pile. And then we could share eventually. But and I don't have any memory of like going to of like me sort of coming up with a master plan with my friends of trying to <laughs> of, of trying to, to share it in my mutual joy. I always felt I think it's ingrained in me on a like genetic level that my interests are dumb and no one else has them, so keep them to yourself. So, so I'm I'm overjoyed that you guys had that experience with Transformers. I would make sure that I planned out in advance when my parents were going to go and do the weekly food shop. If they ever went to Tesco or Asda, I would make sure that in, instead of being kind of like farmed off to a babysitter or left with my grandparents, I'd make sure that after a certain age, I would go with my mum and dad to do the weekly food job just so I could go down to the toy aisle and look at the latest Master of the Universe figures and Transformers. Thinking back to how flaky my memory was at the time, there are certain things which I always remember which I'll never forget because they were linked to my kind of obsession with toys at the time. Now, Bill, John, you might not remember this as well, but do you are you aware of the um, English songwriter Nick Kershaw? Have you ever heard of him, Bill? I heard him, but I'm not really familiar with him. Though. Right, because he came in 1984. He released. He was a bit of a one-hit wonder. He had a few popular songs, but the first one was the Riddle. Now I always remember going into Asda one evening after school with my parents, and that song was playing whilst I was looking at the Masters of the Universe section. And every time I hear that Nick Kershaw song play on the radio, and it's still played to this day in the UK, I always think of being in Asda's, aged maybe <laughs> six or seven. And thinking, right, how am I going to spend my pocket money? Which He-Man figure am I going to go for? And I always remember that night I went for Beast Man. And this is a memory from decades ago. You know, I couldn't tell you what I what I had for tea yesterday. <laughs> Sky, Sky, these are your Proust Madelines. And I, I'm completely on board with this because this is how our memory works. Yeah, it is. And it's, in memory, is such a strange thing. But because it's attached to that thing that was important to me at the time, it's something I'll never forget. And so much of my positive childhood memories are linked to nostalgia, and in particular, are attached to certain franchises like Masters of the Universe and Transformers. So I, I can't put a finer point on what an important thing Transformers was to me growing up. Yeah, no, totally. That's yeah. why that's why the would, three of us are here. Yeah, yeah. I would totally internalize my like play with Transformers as a kid as if like in my brain like I know some kids had imaginary friends my imaginary friends were like you know Optimus Prime and Bumblebee <laughs> the way that Transformers brought out your imagination because you know if you were of an age that you could buy these toys and you could read the bios on the back and like I did you'd memorize them you then would attribute certain characteristics yeah. to these to these toys which you know unlike certain other toy lines they were pretty much kind of generic. Like, you know, I know um, G.I. Joe figures had, had bios, but the Transformers ones were so detailed. And then when you'd see little quirks from the bios introduced into the TV show, it would just kind of enhance this overall feeling of there was something special about these toys that no other toy line had. Yeah, it was influential because you're talking about all the lines that came thereafter, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, you know, whatever the hell's hit, whatever the hell else hit the ground in the 90s. Like, I think they owed a debt to the kind of toy line. Now, you could say that Transformers owed something to uh, Mattel's Masters of the Universe, and I think there's something to that. But the way in which Transformers and Hasbro standardized all that stuff, I mean, they set a template 
of you know just making this multimedia blitz in a way for years and years and years they kept it going uh in a media way that mattel in filmation wasn't as successful doing with he-man and i think he-man was also aimed at a younger audience than transformers and gi joe was too so we were able to grow up uh for a couple of years and keep with gi joe and transformers i mean you know transformers in your case i think with he-man that was like a two-year thing for me where I kind of looked on it as if it was uh, child's toys very quickly. I didn't mm. get that. Transformers, I was able to keep buying to some degree until I was 12, 13 years old, just because the level of complexity, you know, there was always something quasi-model to it. You know, even I wasn't going to play it. I was getting to that that uh, age of adolescence where toys started to make me, you know, I was embarrassed the fact that I st was still buying Cobra vehicles. But Transformers, I could rationalize in my head because it really looked more like a collector's bit. There was something so damn technical about them. Yeah, and I think what fascinates and continues to fascinate me about the toy line, at least, is that there's a lot more engineering into the design of a Transformers figure than any other toy line because it had to be it had to become something else. It had to function as a car and an action figure. And a eight year old or a six year old had to have you know the physical dexterity to change one from the other. And that's a really difficult design task. And so to create literally thousands of these things over the years is a pretty remarkable accomplishment. And Sky, Sky to your point, when the, those little um, inserts that came, the gatefold inserts that were a catalog for everything that was there for that uh, line, I, I guess the product line must have lasted close to a year or something like that. I studied that. I mean, not only did I look at the catalogs that were sold, but I looked at the gatefold things inside and I issued such concentration on all of these toys that I discerned how they would transform just by looking at the images so that when I actually got the few of them that I got, I absolutely knew how to transform them like I was Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello. I had figured it out just based on the car image and the robot image of seeing that looks like a movable piece, that looks like an arm, that looks like where the grill sits, that's where the wheels go. And I was able to, 99% of the time, if I had any skill on earth, it's not for anything I do professionally, it's not for any value I have to another human being, any kind of thing I add to life on planet earth. It was extremely just for my ability to discern how a transformer would go from car to robot mode just based on print collateral alone. That's what history will remember me for. Oh, God, if, if there's anything I can attribute any manual dexterity I've got or you know an ability to use, say, a PlayStation controller, it's because my hands were, were taught how to transform <laughs> these, these complex toys. And, Bill, did you ever have Megatron? Yes, we had Megatron. Right. Do you ever remember it being extremely difficult to get his head to fix into place? And you had to press that son of a bitch so hard. I always remember having a red thumb. I would, you would have to... There was a grey piece of plastic that no matter how hard you push it, just wouldn't <laughs> wedge in. These things, they, they, they were not simple and straightforward. Some of them, like the mini Autobots, you could transform in a matter of seconds. But yeah. others would take you know 45 seconds to a minute, which you know, in the mind of a child is a hell of a long time to transform. Yeah, well, Megatron in particular, I think, was the most disappointing just because his robot mode yeah. looks so dissimilar from the cartoon. It didn't resemble anything. It no. looked like some kind of perverse praying mantis. It was some sort of jackass idea that, yeah, I guess technically he's got he's – he's a quadruped. But I couldn't really work it out much more than that. He looked like he was he was straddling the trigger, like he had this big trigger cock. Yeah. Very – yeah, that was a disappointing toy. 
considering how impressive the cartoon model was, but then you get Optimus Prime. Optimus Prime looked out of the box like yeah. you'd expect to see him on the show. That was more or less like a one to one deal. It was. Obviously, you know, we've waxed lyrical about our love of the toys. Going on to the cartoon, obviously, John, you know, the cartoon dropped the year you were born, so you, you got into it, you know, even after the movie was released. Bill, what are your first kind of recollections of the announcement or, or, the, or the forthcoming movie that was going to be based on, on the Transformers cartoon series? All right, yeah, that blew my mind because there's no way for us. We're not looking at the trades. We're not reading. We're not reading uh, a Deadline. You know, there's there's no way to discern what's happening. We don't know that there's a different outcome for this cartoon. That like, not only you're not getting other, you're are getting another season. You were getting season three, but there was going to be an entire cartoon just inserted in the middle of the run that was going to take the place culturally of a whole season of TV. I had to look on to, you know, when I first started seeing trailers, man, and I'll tell you what, I saw trailers that were running in prime time in the New York area on WNBC, Channel 4 in New York. I remember I was watching Cheers with my parents in 86, and they were running trailers for G.I. Joe, the uh, Transformers, the movie. And I remember thinking, like, holy shit, boys, we crossed over into the big time here, you know, in between Ted Danson and, and Shelley Long. There was the quick runtime. They bought they bought space in prime time for for Transformers the movie trailers. It was the sense of it's first of all it's huge. The it was showing up in places I didn't expect it to be. Also, the quality of the footage was it was a different cell uh, you know style than the TV series. There was more detail. They really cut together decent trailers based on and it, it not and not only that but also the they were touting the voice talent. And so I thought. This this is Thanksgiving. This is Christmas. This is the Wizard of Oz. This is you know Roman Catholic Mass. This is everything. There there could not be anything higher. Culturally, it's the apotheosis of of everything in in an eleven twelve year old's life. Optimus Prime died for our sins, you guys. <laughs> Whatever it was released in the U.S. I think it was released in August eighty six. We had to wait until I think the fifth of December nineteen eighty six for the U.K. release, and it was complete torture. You know, I absorbed every little thing of this. You know, every little special comic book that was released to tie into the film. You know, by the time the film came out, I had absorbed everything I could about the film. But again, that still didn't lessen the impact for what was to follow. Because one of the most incredible things about Transformers the movie is the fact that I can't even compare it to any other franchise where it took these long-established and completely beloved characters and from... A purely marketing point of view, the sole purpose of that film seemed to be, in the minds of us children at the time, to kind of push aside the toys that we were completely enthralled with and to get us to want these newer toys. It was purely a very clever marketing ploy. But what they didn't realise and think, what I think kind of backfired you know, for them in a lot of ways is the fact that we were so attached to those toys that if you think you're going to give us a film that slaughters most of them within the first 20 minutes and we're not going to react negatively to that this was game of thrones level shit this was stuff where <laughs> you know you you don't you don't have a film where you know characters like optimus prime uh, like ironhide prowl are just killed outright and other characters are completely transformed into into you know new versions of their previous selves which are kind of not really the same this was the biggest fuck you to kids that i have ever seen i've never seen it in any any other kind of franchise game of thrones is adult orientated and some of the most shocking tv i've ever seen you know one of the most 
fond memories I'll ever have of watching television is watching my wife's reaction to the Red Wedding, having had it spoiled for me. So I knew what was coming and seeing her just complete and utter horror as, as to what was unfolding. That was me back in December 1986 watching this film. I couldn't believe that they were killing off these characters. And I've heard so many other people talk about it. You can find endless YouTube videos and you know there have been documentaries about what Hasbro did and what th this film kind of you know, had the balls to do and the fact that in many ways it did kind of sign not so much the death now but Transformers was never the same after the movie true John did you have that experience I mean I, I could repeat Sky's thing but I'm really curious what you have to say I was very sad watching all those characters die especially Optimus Prime but it didn't traumatized me in a way that it did for a lot of viewers because I just think I was so enthralled with the story um, because I think because I was backing into to Transformers and it was already on and off the air like so much for me I knew Optimus Prime was out there somewhere that I could still get him in a toy or in another episode um, and I knew I think instinctually that uh, like we saw with Ultra Magnus later in the film that there's always a way to put these things back together. Um, <laughs> like it affected, it certainly affected me emotionally the way that it's supposed to as, as a movie, but it, it, it didn't make me feel betrayed in, in any way, in any like real world way. It, it made me thankful that I got this movie, like the singularity of it, you know, like Sergeant Slaughter wasn't going to die. In GI Joe, you know, Prince Adam wasn't gonna die in in He Man, or you know, you know, like Cyclops wasn't gonna die in, in X Men the Animated Series. But this show gave me a death that you know my little seven year old brain could like mourn, and to me that just made me love the movie even more, and made me like the fact that like this twerp hot rod is the guy responsible for killing my hero Optimus Prime and then now he's the person we're going to follow for the rest of the movie I think is such a difficult narrative choice but I think the movie pulls it off and so for me to at the end be like yeah fucking Rodimus Prime I'm into it now Bill did you ever have a hot rod toy no not, nobody had a hot rod toy I don't think any, yeah, I don't think no, a single one of them was yeah, made yeah. Yeah, so that fucking flame-covered jackass. Who the fuck does he think he is? He is, is irresponsible. Whatever it was, he caused the death of Optimus Prime. So no, I'm, I'm not going to buy an, a, a, a Rodimus Prime or, or certainly not going to buy a hot rod. So from that point of view, the market employee completely fell flat on his face. Yeah, but that's what fascinates me about the movie is that it was a marketing failure, yeah. but a creative victory. Yeah, because as much as, you know, we'll all lament, you know, the, the death of these characters, Bill... Being as hardcore a fan of Transformers as you are, would you change Transformers the movie? Um, you know, I I like the tough. This was my platoon. It's funny because this was right around the same time. This wound up being my platoon for for reals. And I think that in in all of the pop culture deaths that stick out, uh, Optimus Prime lands. Optimus Prime dies doing exactly what he was supposed to doing uh, be doing when he died. And it was the correct amount of he should have died. He should have canceled Megatron out. Um, and he did. You, you can say that he did. And so he also lost to Megatron. Um, I mean, in a way, um, you could say Megatron getting his second act where he gets he gets uh, reanimated is is again, that's why it's my platoon, because you're caught between Barnes and, and Elias. You know, there there is a hard choice to be made. And, and it, I could live with the asymmetry a little bit. 
Optimus Prime dying in the fight where he puts down Megatron. Let's just say Megatron would have died if not for the, um, you know, if not for the, the third act digression of, of running into uh, Unicron and being summoned, essentially. Mm-hmm. So no one could, you know, he, he was supposed to die on, on Astro Train, whatever. That was supposed to happen. Optimus Prime dies the Viking's death, the hero's death. He goes out on top. You know, there's supposed to be a pyre, all that stuff. He passes on the Matrix. I was always totally comfortable with that. And, you know, I, I dare say I was even comfortable with a hot rod. Hot Rod is this sort of Joseph Campbell guy, to some degree, atoning for his mistakes. He's a little bit of a Luke Skywalker figure. I think the biggest part me and you might have is Judd Nelson, to be honest, uh, as the voice actor. Not that I don't like the performance, but I think that nothing necessarily conjures the air to Peter Cullen and his gravelly Texas voice. You know, yeah. Judd Nelson. Judd Nelson isn't doing that. He's not filling those shoes, especially yeah. when you you have a couple of guys like you got you got Robert Stack in there. You got Nimoy and a lot of other heavyweights who hadn't done a lot of voiceovers. And it's like of all the people, you're bringing the guy from Legal Eagles to be the the, <laughs> the inheritor to Optimus Prime. That's not exactly how it works. A bender from from uh, uh, Breakfast Club, um, but. That that being said, I think that the movie I, I always abide by its choices. I have this wide sway of deference to everything it did. And actually it's funny because yep. I'm about to, I'm about to drill down to something weird. Sky, since you asked me, I always felt more robbed that it appeared that Bombshell became Cyclonus yeah. instead of, say, Skywarp. Yeah. And you know what? You can kill Transformers. And John, to what you said about a marketing decision, you know, they could have just said, oh, these guys, these Transformers got on a rocket and went to Saturn. And, you know, buy the new ones because the old ones are just on a mission. That would have been fine, too. You can kill these ones. But when you transform the ones I already have into a form that no longer exists, that means I look at Bombshell and say, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this beetle? <laughs> yeah. Right. Look, my, my issue is, right, like you, you say you mentioned a Viking funeral. Optimus Prime's death is not like Kirk Douglas's body being sent out to sea on a burning boat with Tony Curtis and Janet Lee stood on the mountaintop, you know, <laughs> looking off, and you know that kind of incredibly lifting end into a film. This is twenty-three minutes into a film, he dies. Yes, twenty-three minutes into the film, the the balls he are for doing this. Gray on a slab. Exactly. <laughs> right. Guys, I, I have cried less at actual familial bereavements than I have at Transformers the movie. You know, I've buried pets in a shoebox in the garden in the pouring rain with my children looking out from the patio windows crying. And there's been less emotion attached to that than when I saw this gut-wrenching kick in the balls. Fair play, you know, all credit to them. I don't think... I think it does account a lot for the fact that so many big-name actors like Orson Welles how does Orson Welles sign up as, as his last paid role to do the voice of Unicron in this film? It, it Surely it must have had something to do with the fact that they were looking at the script for what essentially was a kid's film and thinking, holy shit, this is some Shakespearean shit. Some of the dialogue in this film is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. You know, the whole scene between Unicron and Megatron uh, just before he transforms him into Galvatron, the dialogue is absolutely just unlike anything I've ever seen in a kid's TV show, in a kid's film. It, it's just magnificent. It's, it's operatic. It's like John Milius. Yeah, there's something to it. Welcome, Megatron. Who said that? 
knock-on effect of the death of Optimus Prime is in Hasbro's eyes that I think at the same time G.I. Joe the movie was being made or, or was just about being finalised and I think they didn't they make a last minute change the fact that Duke had been killed off then there was this kind of line of dialogue that was slipped in at the end trying to say that he'd come out of his coma yeah and he, he went into the coma in a bit in a bit of ADR loop dialogue and he came yeah. out of the Cobra as a coma in a bit of ADR loop dialogue. That was Hasbro and Sunbow's inability to commit to that either because they thought, oh shit, we fucked up. We better retrench this. So yeah, that, that is the question. From, from a creative point of view, the reason I think we're still talking about this film today is because it is memorable, because it did emotionally scar us. And I, I think it's it, it really works for me for two reasons. Because, well, I, th- I think it's prime at his most Optimus prime for yeah. two reasons. That one he shows mercy to Megatron. He could have murdered him in cold blood when he has the gun to Megatron's head at the end as Megatron's reaching for that kind of little pistol to, you know, he's scheming even as Optimus Prime is granting him mercy. And even though we know that Optimus Prime shouldn't, I know Optimus Prime probably knows he shouldn't grant him mercy, but Optimus Prime wouldn't be who he is if he wasn't the guy to grant Megatron mercy in that moment. Yeah, And Optimus Prime would rather have the opportunity to hand off the Matrix of Leadership, even if it means dying cold and gray on a slab, if, if he could hand it off to Ultra Magnus or, or the heir apparent. He, he doesn't want a Viking funeral. He wants yeah. to be there with the people that he loves to say, it's going to be okay, you're the leader now, and I can die. Yeah. And I think for him to sort of eschew the proper viking badassery that like megatron sort of like covets i think it is the the most optimus prime he can be and so for me that's always why it works are you trying to make me fucking cry on this podcast <laughs> is that what you're trying to do because that is that is beautiful that is a complete understanding of of the character he was and just the 
you know, the completely self-sacrificing hero that he was, which just made it just so much harder that, you know, to see him die so early on in the film. But guys, yeah. I, I want to pivot really quickly because I think part of this, and this goes back to the TV show, you know, we, we brushed up against this in the, uh, in the trivia round in the question segment at the beginning of the show. This show and this, this whole thing doesn't exist on this level unless you have those voice actors. You know, yeah. we're, talk, we're talking about um, Peter Cullen now. And Peter Cullen wasn't just Optimus Prime. He did a lot more. He essentially became the John Wayne of our childhoods. And he was, in fact, doing a, he was doing a Duke Wayne impression, as he'll mm. tell you at any of the million YouTube videos you can look. But all of these guys who were in the show, they furnished this Peter Lorre type thing, this this uh, James Stewart, this Clark Gable. These were the, these guys had these wide outside characters, these these archetypes that other people had 30, 40, 50 years earlier. These were our versions of all those same guys. The bestiary of who inhabits movies. We had actors who were doing exactly the same stellar work as you got in the golden age of Hollywood. I don't think I'm, I mean, I may be gauding them up a little bit, but I think it was just as important for us to have these and it was represented in our cartoons. The G.I. Joe and Transformers family of products, uh, as they were televised in cartoons made by Sunbow, Claster, Marvel kind of thing, whatever that was, was a powerhouse of creativity. The movie inherited all these great relationships that were able to just slide right into something that would be so effective. The fact that you can have a platoon, a cartoon platoon for, for me at that age, is a testament to how brilliant it was that they assembled the voice cast and wrote such great, you know, uh, defined personalities and got guys like Frank Welker and Peter Cullen and, and Corey Burton and Dan Gilvesen and Neil Ross and Jack Angel and, and, and Casey Kazan to do their voices is we don't have, maybe it took Batman animated series, but I mean, other than a few token guys yeah. like, like uh, Mark Hamill, I don't know if people remember that beyond Kevin Conroy, but th this to me, was a golden age for animation. And yes, it was a toy commercial. Yes, it was, you know, the Reagan, the crass Reagan era. But I mean, God damn, watching these cartoons this week in preparation for this, this, this is, this was a real special moment. And, and I don't know, I never appreciated it as much as I do today. And whether it's our own personal nostalgia or whether it is the fact that we were just very lucky back in the 80s, but there was like this sort of, this subconscious connection between all of these different cartoons that we grew up with. And like you mentioned, you know, voice actors like Peter Cullen. Like, Peter Cullen was the voice Avenger from Dungeons & Dragons. Now, whether or not you consciously knew that fact when you were watching the show, there was always this sort of thing that linked these shows together because, you know, the real Ghostbusters, uh, Frank Welker, the voice of Megatron, he was the voice of Peter Venkman in that show. Yeah. Yep. And he was, you know, he was the voice of Fred in Scooby Doo. And Alan Oppenheimer, who was the voice of Skeletor, shows up all over the place in G.I. Jones. You know, there, there was this interconnection between these different franchises, and you know, they they all felt far more special than anything that's come since. Yes, I know that you know the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were a huge hit in the late eighties, early nineties. There's always this kind of Buzz Lightyear-esque toy of the Christmas season. There's always something that is the toy that the kids have to have. But there was something special about that kind of groundswell of these really great quality franchises that we had in the early 80s that not only were they toys, but they had these really good cartoons and they had these awesome comic books. And it was a whole franchise just wrapped up in one. And I, I, I just don't think we've seen you know the likes of that in that sort of concentration ever since. 
Well, you can't. You, you, the culture is so balkanized. I mean, even as of the 1990s, it became balkanized in a minor way. And certainly today, you know, when I, I watch cartoons, whether it's from my own podcast or just out of curiosity to see what are people into today? And in in a way, people who did not do cartoon voices, people who are non-conventional choices, have the avenue of being able to do all these different brands, be it Steven Universe, be it um, Metalocalypse, be it anything that, that kids are sort of watching in all these non-traditional venues. And I think that's fantastic. And yeah, w- what we had was a monopoly when we were of that age. The same people who came up in the, in the 70s doing all the voices for Hanna-Barbera and other what I would consider to be shoddier cartoon brands came of age and were doing excellent work for Sunbow Claster. And that I know everybody says that what they grew up when they were a kid was a golden age. In this case, I do think that there was a very specific time and place, like you say, Sky. And we did. We were the beneficiaries. Our imaginations were the beneficiaries of something that did not come along before that and probably was not really reprised after that either. Well, I remember around about this time as a kid, I asked my father what the equivalent kind of thing for him was growing up. And he didn't have an answer for me. You know, he he grew up in the you know like the the late sixties. There was nothing like this for him. And I think from that point of view, we we are just an inc- you know a, a very lucky portion of a generation that we we had all of this just uber cool shit surrounding <laughs> us. We we were saturated by great franchises as kids. I mean, we grew up in the legacy of uh, Mel Blanc. I mean, just talking about cartoons, for instance, the the great inspiration of of, uh, of what was imaginatively drawn animation. We had arguably some of the best stuff. I think we both grew up in the English tradition, the Anglo tradition of having things like the Looney Tunes and Warner Brothers and Tom and Jerry and even some of the early Hanna-Barbera stuff from the 50s and 60s. And, you know, you had Mel, Mel Blanc and you had Dawes Butler and June Foray and all these great voice actors who pretty much invented the form. And, you know, I think animation went through a little bit of a dark era in the late 60s and 70s when when it was cheap and it was cheapened. So, uh, you know, our parents' generation had, you know, what would have been great cartoons. But I think we also they were all played alongside each other on Sunday morning so that we weren't bereft of any of those influences. They were all there at once. So we got to enjoy the new stuff from the 80s, plus the golden age stuff from the 40s, 50s and 60s. That was great for us. Yeah, I definitely had the same experience where I got to watch, you know, Transformers sandwich in between Looney Tunes cartoons. And, you know, for me, it was the same thing. Like, I, I consciously knew, like, this was much, much older, but it was still an equal source of joy. Yeah. So going back to the film, guys, it, you know, if, if you want to look at the history of the Transformers franchise, you can watch, you know, the, the, the brilliant Netflix documentary, The Toys That Made Us, and that'll tell you all about the Transformers toys themselves came to be. And the fact that, the, you know, the TV show was effectively a, a big marketing tool. But then the film was kind of released to bridge the gap between the TV show's second and third seasons. And, you know, the, the film itself would make a 20-year time jump from 2005, or sorry, from 1985 to 2005. Looking back at the film, guys, it, the opening, on, on the recent rewatch for this episode... The opening of the film is just so breakneck and it's pacing. So much happens, so many characters are both introduced and established and, and existing characters are killed. It, it, it just hits you at such a pace. There's so much to, to kind of absorb that you know, you're looking for a kind of bit of a fallow period with you know, you're, you're allowed time to breathe because so much has happened in such a short period of time. And we are, like, like, like I said, we're talking about monumental stuff. You know, I, I just can't recall how I processed this as a kid seeing it on first viewing. There is just something so undeniably 
goddamn cool like when the opening <laughs> like riffs of dare happen and it's like this 60 second music video of cup just being this old grizzled badass like the fight choreography of him like spinning around and pulling up the the tank turret and like blasting the shit out of things it's just awesome and just the 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 grim like fiery death throes of you know brawn and prowl and ratchet and ironhide as they're getting (laughs) shot like it's not just that they're getting shot it's that they're getting shot in the guts and their robot equivalent of blood and gristle comes out of their mouths and eyes as they die of fiery death, and they get shot in the head by Megatron's blaster as these say no. <laughs> such her and he says, such heroic nonsense is the last thing you hear before you die. Holy shit! What an opening for a movie, you guys. <laughs> I'll tell you this. Uh, this this is, I don't know if this is me being a movie freak at an early age or what, but um, the very first shot after there's the DEG logo that comes down from the screen, you know, the, the, the Sunbow logo. Then what you wind up getting is the opening strains of Vince DiCola's score for this. And I hope we keep saying the word Vince DiCola over and over again yes. until he finally appears like Beetlejuice. Right. It's a combination of the synthesizer beat with a little bit of a slide and a pump. and almost sounds like a steam. And then his, yeah, his very Keith Emerson influenced score. In fact, I saw an interview with Vince DiCola. He said after he did the score, he did put together a cassette. He sent it to Keith Emerson's people and he kind of begged them, can you please let Keith Emerson listen to this? And Emerson sent him a very nice note back and he says, thank you so much. I'm I'm so, uh, you know, I'm so flattered that this is done in my image. I go, I hear the influences you're talking about. I really appreciate it. And so Vince DiCola like, lived a whole life getting the, the magic wand blessing of Keith Emerson based on this. But the first camera, the first shot is this corona of a sun and there's this silhouette of unicron coming at you and and it fades into unicron approaching the camera and it does this incredible sweep in one shot where it passes by the surface of unicron from the f- first part of his hemisphere it rolls onto the side and a quick succession you see all of this detail these spikes these spires these lights as unicron he pan the camera pans by you sweeps past the camera and you see him go away and it was this monumental animation choice i think that was really inspired by anime it that was a really heavily japanese thing that they, they did not do in the cartoon series because they just didn't have the way to do it on tv but for the movie they upscaled the vision they made the actual picture of it's so much more complex. And that is what, now the deaths came after that, but I feel like I was primed, so to speak, based on seeing Optimus Prime sweep by the camera in this one way. And then, I mean, Optimus Prime, Unicron. And then when you see during the opening credits, Laserbeak is scouting and he's spying on Moonbase One. He does this the same kind of thing. He flies towards the camera and he sweeps by and the camera passes by him and sees him go away. And at that point, the direction credit for Nelson Shin pops up over on the screen at the same time. And it was just, again, this way of seeing Laserbeak more titanic, more monumental. You just know the stakes were higher. This character meant something more because it had this feature film look. It was filmic. The deaths hit with the with the momentum that they were supposed to hit but i was primed to accept that because i knew that we were in a different auspice than just a half hour episode 
on afternoon TV after I got home from school. Yeah, there's so much menace and grimness in those opening like boom, 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 boom uh, chords. And the suite that you were just talking about, about Unicron, makes us fear him yeah. or it. And we accept when it eats a planet. Like it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's like, oh, well, of course this thing is going to eat a planet. That's what it does. Like, I don't think we've ever seen as effective a Galactus as Unicron, especially yeah. at least on screen. Yeah, this is a terrifying being of universal power. And I think from those moments helps us accept the character deaths going forward because this is the biggest scale. The Transformers, you know, millions of years old um, technological beings far beyond our reckoning, they're going to die. And so this scale is what we're working with here. But tell me that they you you they introduced the character of Kranix with a K, if I might add, and Arvless. These you've never seen before, and they just look they're non-transforming, you know, robot planet randos. They could be just fucking Joe Bozo or whatever. And yet their fear, the reality with which their planet comes comes apart around their fucking yeah. fingertips. I mean, it lands. You don't have to know them, but they sell the horror. That they're going through that, you know, just simply put, that might as well have been from a Miyazaki movie or something. We've never seen that before. And there it's, it is. It's, there's like some writer's room meeting where Nelson Shin is like, all right, everybody, we're going to play this straight. I know this is a toy commercial, but these are real beings who are afraid for their lives. Yeah, get the get the voice performance. Get Wally Burr and the rest of the guys who get the voice cast. Make sure these guys screech to within an inch of their lives that they are literally being killed. Not unlike Nicolas Cage getting the bee hat put on him in uh, <laughs> in uh, Wicker Man remake. I want to hear some real emotion from that. And that's th those guys sell those deaths. And that again, that's the opening salvo. It's the opening minute and a half, three minutes of this film. That's fucking nuts. And you, you said, Bill, you want to keep mentioning Vince DiCola. If, you know, our good friend Neil Gaskin was here now and we mentioned Vince, Vince DiCola, <laughs> he would no doubt point out the fact that Vince DiCola is responsible for one of the greatest songs ever committed to film. From Rocky IV, 1985, the year before, he was actually the producer of Hearts on Fire, which is the yep. song that overlays what is easily the greatest film montage ever. Ever. Yes. Ever. Aside from his amazing score for this film, let's just talk about the soundtrack for Transformers the movie. And I'll start you off with Stan Bush. <laughs> Stan Bush, the vocal of a lifetime, the hero narrative, perhaps not since, I mean, not, not until maybe the Avengers theme that, who was it, uh, uh, Silvestri came Han, up with? Uh, yeah, Han Silvestri, yeah. Yeah, right. And it's like there is, is Dare lived in our minds and it was only in one place. And it was only in one or two scenes. And the same thing with uh, uh, the touch. You know, you're talking about a vocal performance that was strictly out of the 80s. It was so endemic and idiomatic of the age in which it was created, but it was totally perfect. And yeah, there was some kind of devilry, some sort of witchcraft that Vince DiCola engaged in in writing this and that they plucked him from the work on Rocky IV was so, again, idiomatic and symptomatic of the age in which it came. It was so jingoistic. It was so big and over the top that somehow they said this Scotty Brothers produced uh, artist who was under contract for uh, you know a minor label at the time in Los Angeles, he's the guy to do the work. I just feel like he pivoted almost in the same moment from that awesome night. There's there is hearts on fire sky, but then there's also the Rocky training montage, which mm. is which is a sui generous piece of art 
that to me is right next to Hearts on Fire for sure, but that is a kitty cousin to, um, you know, this, this soundtrack. It, it's like you could have almost auditioned him for this whole score based on the Transformers, I mean, based on the Rocky Four training montage too. And there's so many things in common with that throughout this entire movie. One of the things I love is just that he maintains this moment without taking his eye off of it. And he wrote that song or produced it for Stan Bush. You know, and that's the thing, because Neil, I mean, Vince DiCola didn't sing for himself, but but Stan Bush had the chance to put 80s pipes on top of something. And so it was this, you know, the symbiosis to create something greater than the two of them put, you know, apart they could have done. And, and staying on the on, on Stan Bush, Bill, if I had been the quiz master in the earlier Transformers quiz, one of my questions to you would have been, Stan Bush's You Got the Touch was originally recorded for which film? Oh man! Oh, God damn it! I uh, I know this. Stan Bush, you got the touch. Was I'll, I'll give you a clue, Bill. It's yeah. from the year before Transformers the movie. Yeah, eighty-five. I don't got it. What is it? It is Cobra, the Sylvester okay. Stallone film. <laughs> All right. It was recorded. Perfect. It was recorded for Cobra, Oof. and it was never used. So it was kind of a holdover from that film, and then it was later used in Transformers the movie. We'd still be talking about Cobra today if the touch was on yeah. that soundtrack. Oh, Ma- Marion Cabretti would literally be held in obviously a similar regard <laughs> to Optimus Prime. Exactly. But, but how about the soundtrack? We mentioned uh, Vince Nicola does the soundtrack, but the, that's, he does the score, I should say. The soundtrack to this is what was actually released in the day. What you could actually buy on cassette and LP was the Scotty Brothers soundtrack. Yeah. Which were the actual heavy metal, hair metal, poison type, uh, blo- you know, bands from Los Angeles who got brought into the studio to make these signature standalones, and, and you know, and, and Weird Al was in there too to do uh, Dare to Be Stupid. But you know, you had some incredible songs that were completely at home. Talk about inflating the profile of this movie, not just the cinematography, not just the color, not just the deaths of the characters, but and and the casting of substantial voice actors but then you bring in this real like Dokken type crocus power hour soundtrack of shit I would never listen to again in my life I mean the type of music I'm saying that was totally out of my listening purview and yet this stuff stays in my rotation today because it's so emblematic of where I was at that age I don't know how I would have taken the music you know because Transformers the movie is one of those movies that I've loved my entire life, and I think we all have few things that you can love the same way when you're six as when you're 36. But I don't know if I would have been able to love these songs at, like, 17 or 22 um, if they weren't attached to Transformers, because I think, you know, at that age, you're like, this stuff is dumb hair metal. But yeah, knowing I'm that... You. I'm with you, yeah. Yeah. But knowing that Decepticons get fucking killed to the to the you know 80s strings of the touch i'm like yeah uh give me the touch (laughs) (laughs) now well as soon as we all agreed that and i I know we'd mooted around for a long time that at some point we were going to do a transformers episode be a transformers a movie or just transformers in general as soon as we agreed and, and set a date to do this immediately as you know bill Anyway, I went on to Spotify, I downloaded the, the, the Transformers soundtrack, but it was already there in my brain, just ready to be unlocked. Because when I was a kid, I was lucky enough to have the Transformers of the movie vinyl soundtrack, which I just played on repeat. That music is still there. I couldn't tell you if it's, if it's cheesy or just genius, but Day has been 
on repeat in my brain in the background for the last week and I am completely cool with that. It is just such an amazing soundtrack. I, I, I can't compare it to any other kids film. You know, it's like so much attention has gone into the soundtrack alone and the way the songs kind of match the action on screen. It's just, it's, it's flawless. It, 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 you know, it, that's a podcast in itself of just, you know, if we were going to do a music podcast, we could pick apart every song in the Transformers movie soundtrack and just lord it up to high heaven. It's just a, it's, in the, it's in the blood, it's in the will, it's in the mighty hands of steel. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely there with you. Yeah, I have visceral is. sense memories of me getting the soundtrack when I when the 20th anniversary DVD came out. I was like, I need a soundtrack, I need a soundtrack. I have visceral sense memories of me actually enjoying working out because. <laughs> I was listening to the soundtrack while working out. That's how good this soundtrack is. Oh, you know, and again, like I said, the, the the intro to this episode, it is extremely difficult, certainly for me, to separate objectivity from nostalgia when it comes to Transformers. So for anyone who is not familiar with Transformers and is listening to this podcast purely out of loyalty for Film 89, first off, you know, we thank you. But secondly... I don't know anymore. I don't know if you know, if it's just <laughs> if you if I was to wipe my memory and at the age I am now to go into this film and watch it, I have no idea what I would make of it because this is stuff that is in my DNA. I I cannot separate nostalgia from objectivity. I, I can't give you any reasonable sort of judgment as to whether or not this is something that appeals just purely to us or is just a, a complete load of shit. I don't know. But, I, but I really can, don't. Can, can, can I get a bit literary here and Please. get up my own ass and give you an objective reason why Transformers is uh, pretty good? One one of the things I love about Transformers is the relationship between Optimus Prime and Megatron. And I think mm. they are some of the most effectively characterized protagonists and antagonists in children's entertainment or cartoons or 80s pop culture, whatever. Because they just hate each other. Like, they, they see each other and, like... Megatron is the smartest guy in the room wherever he is, but when he sees Optimus Prime, he's, I'm going to rip out your optics. And at the end of uh, More Than Meets the Eye, like Optimus Prime, the composed, centered leader, he sees the Decepticon ship escaping back to Cybertron, and he takes a jetpack from one of his Autobots and puts it on and goes off chasing it. And the Autobots are like, the, the, the jetpack is slower than the ship. You're never going to catch him. But he is incensed that he's just lost to Megatron, that he's making illogical decisions. He is seeing, he is Ahab in that moment. He sees his white whale <laughs> escaping, and he says, from hell's heart, I stab at thee, and puts on that jetpack and launches himself in, gets himself shot down. And it's only because Mirage was smarter than Optimus Prime at that moment that they're able to stop the ship and and make the Decepticons crash back to Earth. That is some good characterization for your characters, and I don't think you get that in any other franchise of this time. Again, Welker, Welker and Cullen, though, you're talking about yeah. delivering... They're, yeah. they're, they are, John, John, I think that's great, and I hadn't thought about that before you mentioned it. They are quite literally Greek myths. There is some you know, archetypal text that was hammered in cuneiform into the side of a frieze somewhere in <laughs> Athens. This, this goes all the way back to that tradition. And, you know, the characters, as they were drawn by a bunch of poorly paid Japanese guys in a room is one thing. But, you know, when you get that, that when you flip the cells and you get the persistence of, of, of image and vision and whatnot, Peter Cullen and Frank Welker, every single time they stepped out, never shanked it, never gave anything less than 10,000%. So, you know, Frank Welker 
always hissed Gal- uh, Megatron at at the, and he does eventually do Galvatron too. If, if I'm, I'm tipping my hand here, but he always gave the appropriate amount of of weight that you if you had someone who was voicing sisyphus it was going to push that fucking boulder every time <laughs> you got to make sure that that guy thinks this is the time man i'm fucking getting that boulder up to the top of the hill and he's always surprised that the thing slides back down the other side and i think that colin and welker open the door to your to your 11 to your 12 year old brain of making sure that you buy every single thing they do and yeah it gives me chills hearing what you just said about you know Optimus Prime was not going to let it go he's going to Ahab it it's a great tradition and it's like those guys in that writers room totally they sold it man they just bought right into it and I bought into it too I think the kind of groundwork has already been laid out in in the animated series because as much as you know it's not without its problems there were loads of animation issues there were glitches aplenty in every episode so much of that dialogue is just for a kids animated show from the 80s is just so cool there's so much great stuff in in the you know the, the two-part the megatron's master plan and as much as the writing in the tv show just does in a way kind of pale compared to the movie the, oh god the dialogue in the film is just so great but you know i think the writers you know they had to up their game because look at the cast you've got awesome wells uh leonard nimoy judd nelson lionel yeah. stander robert stack yeah. eric idle and Lionel Stander is so good as God. It's so amazing. Right, let's, guys, Orson Welles. Come on, we need to devote a few minutes of this episode to Orson Welles. This I'm is glad the guy, you said that. Right, this is the guy that, unfortunately, far too early on in his still quite remarkable career, peaked with Citizen Kane, which is one of the greatest films of all time. You know, he then went on to a Touch of Evil, which is just remarkable film. Even though he was on screen only for a couple of minutes, compared to you know the film's main star Joseph Cotton, he completely stole the you know the show in the Third Man. Incredible and Am- film. Ambersons is an incredible. Yeah, the Magnificent movie. Ambersons. This Orson Welles is without doubt one of the single greatest, greatest and most important contributors to film. His last film is Transformers the movie. You know, he signed on to this film. He read the script and this. <laughs> I can't not say it, but the irony of Orson Welles knowing how he was physically in the later parts of his life plays a giant, <laughs> all-devouring planet. You know, the, the irony there is just too good to, to avoid. So according right. to Flint Dill, the, the writer, that was one of the first things he said in the recording session. Like, oh, I see Evan Cass as a planet, eh? Typecasting, so he was very yeah. Self-conscious, yeah, he was <laughs> self-conscious of that irony. All right. Well, so so uh, one of my friends is this guy up in um, uh, Somersville, Somersville, Mass. Uh, a guy by the name of Tim Finn, who's an expert on GI Joe and the Transformers. He's been making a coffee table book on GI Joe for a long time called "The Real American Hero," mm-hmm. and he is just about as encyclopedic a reference on all things uh, Sunbow, Claster, Hasbro as as there is. He's been my pope for these things in a while, so he actually has. The original voice sessions of Orson Welles in the studio, as it was recorded into the microphone by Wally Burr, because he he talked to Wally Burr. Wally Burr, I think, died at the age of like 94, 95, about four or five years ago. And my friend needed to get him as a primary reference for this book uh, because he did G.I. Joe as well. And he asked him while he was there it's like i got asked about orson wells and he had some orson wells stories to tell now the thing is is that i asked this guy tim i said i said i need to hear because wally gave him the mp3s of these files they're all digital now i said tim i gotta hear this he says you can hear this if you come to Som- somerville massachusetts if you come up here you can hear it i'm like but just send me the file he goes 
I made a promise to Wally Burr. Wally told me he would give me this file only on the pain of death that I would never send it out to anybody else. He goes, if you come up here, I will play it to you on my laptop, but I can't give this to you. So somewhere there exists the original Orson Welles files, uh, a wheezing, weak, you know, compromised Orson Welles and all the off-camera stuff, all the interstitials. And apparently at one point he kept calling the camera, uh, the, the character Unicorn. He couldn't get that right for a while, for a couple of days' worth of the uh, uh, recordings. But these rec- – I can't believe in the era of everything compromising that's come out about – I mean, the fucking frozen pea commercials are out there. The Paul Messon wine commercials. Everything that would be compromising to Orson Welles is already a matter of public record. But we don't have the Unicron tapes. And I – someday I'm going to go to Massachusetts. I'm going to listen to these things. And I'll have, I'll have a story to tell. Now, apparently, Bill, what I've heard about those recordings is – they tried and tried and tried to get him to say those lines of dialogue at the speed that they wanted him to. But for whatever reason, whether or not it was ill health or the sort of timbre of voice he was trying to put on at the time, they just couldn't get him to say the words quick enough. So what they ended up doing in post was speeding up his dialogue and then reducing it down in pitch back to that sort of booming, you know, awesome Wells voice we all kind of know. So Ultimately, from a point of view of them having to speed it up and then pitch it back down, it was synthesized to quite a degree that I think those original recordings would probably sound quite different to the dialogue that we know from the film. It would sound sad, I'm sure. Yeah, but I think that's also another kind of happenstance magic that contributes to this movie being so good is that that's the perfect sort of effect you want for a planet sort of almost psychically speaking to you inside your head saying he's going to control you and that now that he owns your soul like he's he's basically become the devil to megatron like you're selling your soul to this malevolent planet eating being it shouldn't sound like a human even one as godlike as orson wells it's he, he's been manipulated and pitched to an inhuman degree and it makes unicron sound like you kind of want unicron to sound like it's it, it, it's a total sort of you know i'm sorry to use this what again, magical happenstance that contributes to this movie. Yeah, an unintentional victory. Yeah. You know, one thing about this film, in the, you know, my obsessive knowledge of Transformers and then in the subsequent research I've done for this episode, I've never been able to work out why. Cl- clearly, Transformers the movie, like, you know, we all know now that it was shot or it was animated in 1.33 to 1 aspect ratio, which is television ratio. So that would suggest that this film was originally going to be a straight to VHS or you know straight to television feature length film at what point did they decide and why did they decide to make this a theatrical production it had to you know, cash man why else mm. they must have thought they're like well, let's do this it hadn't been done before there hadn't been a Smurfs movie there hadn't been a you know Pac-Man cartoon movie there hadn't been a Scooby-Doo movie in the theater but like they figured what why the fuck not let's do this we got the cloud of the of the cartoon behind us and the toy line like how could we lose I would have liked to have seen a Smurfs movie where they kill half the cast and then there's another <laughs> set of Smurfs identical to the Smurfs they just murdered. <laughs> and you know, guys, not to put too much of a damper on things, but as much as we, clearly the three of us, unashamedly love this film, it was made on a budget of $6 million, which for an animated film of the time is huge. Worldwide gross was $5 million. So, you know, in fact, 5860000 So it actually came in and made a loss. Well, allow me to suggest a Dutch curse that I've learned since I came here, which is you should all die of ass cancer 
that's what I say to the audiences who shot this movie down because apparently they did not know what they had in front of them. And, you know, all I had was one ticket to give them back in 86. And it's not my damn fault. Especially the 80s is littered with legendary films that went both critically and commercially unrecognized. Like, you know, if, if Blade Runner can't get a fair shake both from critics and in theaters and just sometimes things that are really good are ignored and i think especially you know coming from somebody who loves heavy metal so much there's so much great music from that era that is indelible to me from you know 1984 that you know three other people know about and that just sometimes the way pop culture goes even now with you know how multifarious and sort of isolated we are in our consumption sometimes they're just too much to consume and so so much gets ignored. Even when that wasn't the case, there there's just some things that don't get the love they deserved in their time, but here we are still talking about it. And so I think that's at least a victory for this movie. Yeah, in the late 90s, um, there started to be this thing in the States called BotCon, and I believe the first few of them were in Indianapolis. I think it was a more or less a fixed location for a bunch of years. And it started out as an organic thing that was on a sort of primitive version of the Internet. You know, before Facebook and social media was a thing, it was a place where people made up fan sites and web rings. And so Transformers was a very organic idea that enthusiasts who were completely of my age and generation decided to drive from all sorts of places in the Midwest to Indianapolis. And they they self-curated a convention called BotCon, probably in a hotel ballroom somewhere that was more or less, I'm sure, fairly affordable if a lot of people sold amount of tickets up front. And that was the old days when conventions, this is before Hasbro took uh, note of the fact that there was still a fan base. These, these, this was shortly after the days of, uh, what is it, Bantam Books started publishing Star Wars. You know, Star Wars was a moribund brand until they started publishing the paperbacks or the hardbacks of the, uh, the Grand Admiral Thrawn trilogy. All these great brands from our childhood were more or less moribund, and people had the beginning and the middle of the 90s to celebrate them more or less without any corporate uh, oversight, which was nice. And so this this botcon managed to they used to they would get these guys you'd get Jack Angel you'd get Sue Blue they would fly them out either on their own dime or they would pay for their tickets and get them to come out and these people would sit in front of panels and they would revere them like they were Walter Koenig you know like they were Jimmy Doohan and it was a Star Trek convention from 1979 done all over again except for Transformers and it began early I mean people did not waste much time and it felt like a culty fan thing. And that's where I picked up on other people being into Transformers, especially Transformers the movies, because BotCon was there. Uh, and I, I never went to Indianapolis, but it made it it made sense that these people were celebrating the same thing I liked unironically, and they were giving love, unironic love, very sincere love to the creators of those things. If they could get Flint Dilly, if they could get Ron Friedman, if they could get these guys out there, they would sit in front of a room full of a lot of heavy set nerds wearing, you know, keyboard wrist braces, uh, you know, with chin with neck beards and gigantic chin waddles and ill-fitting shirts, telling them how much they fucking love their stuff. And it, it meant a lot when it was coming at you. And that that was the beginning of the culture. So I feel like that started early. And I'm not saying it was more authentic then than it is now, but that's that's that was the beginning. That was the genesis. And I have to imagine that 
the real sincerity of the love of this thing has been transmitted all along. Yeah. So, guys, before we kind of you know wrap up the you know the sort of generation one period of Transformers and just briefly move on to what followed, trying to be as objective as we can, guys, trying to separate nostalgia and our sort of childhood memories. Transformers the movie, work of genius, or I don't know what is it, guys? I, I you usually usually we'd you know we often even when we do retrospectives we give a mark out of ten for a film. I'm not even going to go there with this because as I've said, I I just this is something I don't even think I can be objective about. But is it just us, or is it a great film? What do you say, John? Uh, Has the Imperial Magistrate reached the verdict? <laughs> uh, yes. No, this is a great film. Um, I, I think it's it's a miracle any movie gets made. It's a miracle any good movie gets made. And then it's a even smaller subset of a miracle when, when those good movies are financially successful or are remembered. And so I think the fact that there's still such a fan base around this thing, there, there is a reason for that. I know that there are subsequent movies with the word Transformers in the title that were financially successful that I would not say that about. But this is a wonderful piece of pop culture that could never have happened except in 1986 with the sort of prevalence of you know, Hasbro and Mattel in American, you know, kids' bedrooms, the prominence of Saturday morning cartoons, and the talent of voice actors and animators available. This is something that I think is a true gem of pop culture that could never have happened anywhere else. And I think it's sort of the pinnacle of that sort of storytelling. Um, And I think the subsequent rebooting of the franchise has shown us that you can't capture that magic again and we're left perpetually unsatisfied with those reimaginings but this thing is something that keeps getting better in retrospect and i think that's something that we can't say that much about about things from our childhood and i've been able to introduce this movie to people like in my adulthood they've said to me like there's why would you love Transformers a movie? Have you ever watched it? Well, no. Well, here, let's sit down. And they're like, wow, that was great. And so it's been a joy to share this thing with people. Yeah, I would add to that. Um, do, do you know of any movie by Hal Ashby or, or Robert Altman that has a three-story a three story tall robot made out of six garbage trucks <laughs> beating the shit out of five robot dinosaurs? No. <laughs> So I would say 10 out of 10, no reservations, full-throated recommendation. Right. Well, let me try and be the voice of objective reason. There are things about this film that I've hated even back in 1986. I don't like the character of Wheelie and his stupid rhyme talk. I don't like the dumbing down of the Dinobots that were made even more stupid than they were in the animated series. You know, there's a lot of silliness in this film that I think goes so against some of the great things the film does. But the great things the film does... That whole scene between Unicron and Megatron, which is just fucking magnificent. Optimus Prime's heroic moment set to You Got the Touch. The opening, you know, the, the opening 23 minutes of this film is just absolutely fantastic. And I think it is, you know, the film does peak early. And certainly my interest has always waned in the latter half of the film. But there's, there's so much the film does right. It is a great film from. The perspective of me at the time as i don't know what was i a, a nine-year-old child and it's something i'm not able to separate objectivity from nostalgia 
the fucking music. The music is something I can be objective about. The music is just pure class. You know, the, <laughs> you know Vince DiCola's score, all of the songs which are used. You know, even Weird Al Yankovic manages to that fits in with the scene in the film. It's just an amazing soundtrack, and I've listened to it on repeat for the last week. And that is one thing I am able to be objective about. If a, if a soundtrack is meant to enhance a film, just like if you removed John Williams's score from Jaws, that film wouldn't be anywhere near as effective. Exactly the same thing goes for Transformers the movie. Yes, agreed. Yeah, yeah this is a four-quadrant nostalgia trip for me because I've been a Weird Al fan since I was at least 10 years old. And so to hear Dare to be Stupid in this movie, and I've been, I had the great fortune of having parents with great senses of humor who exposed me to Monty Python at an early age. And so I've loved Monty Python since I was like a very small child. And so to have Eric Idle and Weird Al in the same scene in a Transformers movie, like, fuck you guys. This is a good movie. (laughs) And and to, to you saying that they dumbed down the Dinobots, me Grimlock fool. Like it gives me the opportunity to just quote these, in, these nonsense but so such endearing lines from the Dinobots who I love to death. Um. So yeah, some sometimes there's just no way to objectively praise art. Hmm. Uh. And this is a piece of art, you guys. There you go. It is. Yes. Before we move on to the kind of latter part of the Transformers legacy, bringing it into um, you know the 2000s and onwards, guys, um, I did ask you in prep for this episode if you could to compile your list of your five favorite Transformers. So, John, starting with you, what 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 is your what are your five favorite Generation One Transformers characters? Well, first, I have to give special recognition to the Dinobots as a group because as a kid the only thing i loved more than big space robots was dinosaurs so to see them combined into one thing that just triggered my little little kid brain into spasms of joy uh so they they get a free pass uh for forever so my five are uh cup because i just i, I love an old embittered warrior robot soundwave optimus prime Megatron and Starscream. I'm a little bit basic with my Transformers, but I, I can't help it. So your Star, Starscream is your number one? Yes. Whoa. <laughs> I, I just, I love, like, there's so many, like, obsequious second-in-commands, but this guy's just like, I'd be better than you, Megatron. Well, then why don't you take over? To Shut up! <laughs> like, I, I love, I just love their relationship. Like, it's so... It's so openly adversarial that they hate each other. I love the comedy that comes from it. But they're both like, but Starscream isn't a pushover. He transforms into a fucking fighter jet and shoots missiles and like kills Autobots. He is not to be taken lightly. And so I, I just love that relationship the two of them have together. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll go with mine next. And my number five, I'll go for kind of a cheap, I think, we should be allowed at least one combiner group. So I'm going to go for the Constructicons and Devastator simply because of all the Transformers toys I wanted as a kid. The one group that, as it turns out, if I'd liked Transformers or been as obsessed with Transformers for a little bit longer, maybe into my teenage years, I could have actually picked up a later reissue of the the all-in-one kind of packing of all the Constructicons. 
But when I was at the height of my love for Transformers, they were the ones I wanted the most. I just loved that kind of lime green sort of color scheme. And the fact that, you know, as a little kid, I used to love to play with diggers and construction toys. And yeah. you know, yep, to see yep, yep, those yep. things integrated into Transformers and six little robots that would combine into one kick-ass big robot was the fucking coolest thing I have ever seen. And the fact that I never had Devastator just left a hole in me that was just always went unfulfilled. So there's always been a special place in my heart for him. Number four, I got to pick Sideswipe. He was just one of the coolest Autobots. And when you were saying earlier, I think, John, you mentioned about the fact that there's a scene where Optimus Prime takes his rocket pack. As soon as you said that, the dialogue from those episodes is just going on autoplay in my head, where Prime says, Sideswipe, give me your rocket pack. My rocket pack? Now! Uh, yeah, right. And then he kind of hand, reluctantly hands him his rocket pack. And it's just like, hang on, none of the Autobots can fly, but for some reason, Sideswipe can. He is cool as fuck. And, you know, yeah, the twin brother, Sunstreaker, was a bit of a more aloof kind of snobby Autobot. But Sideswipe was like the really cool one that you knew that all the Autobots liked him. Number three, he used to be my number one, but he's kind of gone down the list. Although, you know, the kid in me is kind of screaming from the glass cage that he's in saying, no, no, it's, it's Jazz. I always loved Jazz. I always loved the fact that he was voiced by Scatman Crothers. He was, you know, if Sideswipe was cool, Jazz took it to the next level. You know, he was the most dependable kind of right-hand man someone like Optimus Prime could ever have, and I just loved him. Number two, Shockwave. Megatron isn't in this list. It's too easy a pick. Shockwave, the character in the cartoon was far more subservient and loyal to Megatron than the character in the comic books. And Bill, I know you know what I'm getting at here. Shockwave in the comic books was a whole different thing. If Megatron was terrifying, Shockwave was the one that ultimately was responsible for killing all the Transformers. Going back to that classic uh, Marvel Comics cover of you had the Transformers logo up the top and then you had Shockwave you know, on the main cover having burned into a wall with his laser cannon arm are all dead. <laughs> is there more is there a more out you know outside of maybe you know Jim Lee's X-Men comic covers amazing you know the amazing Spider-Man first issue is there a more iconic comic book cover than that? Uh maybe some of uh, uh, Ditko and Kirby at the way beginning something like that but not many. Not many. Number one going back to the story I told you about the first Transformers toy I ever had it's going to be Soundwave. When have you ever heard a character in a mainstream kid show with such an unusual but such a cool voice? He, he's also got little Transformers in his chest, which he can just bring into battle at any point. He, I, I always kind of lent a little bit towards the Decepticons because they were always slightly cooler. And if anything, probably Soundwave is probably the least cool of all the Transformers in, in, in a lot of respects. Because, But he ultimately turns into a Walkman, which is pretty shit. But I don't know, it's just something, I've, I've always had this link to, to Soundwave that I just, in robot form, and you think back, and I, Bill, I know that you can immediately picture what I'm getting at here, the artwork off the box of him stood there with his big fucking shoulder cannon and that big gun, he looked as good as any other Transformer design in robot yeah, form. With Buzzsaw on his shoulder, which yeah. no other robot boasted. Like, what no. the hell, was he a pirate, a robot pirate? Fucking and robot there's... pirate. Is there anything cooler? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I always love sound. I've, I've never been able to imitate his voice. I always tried and always sounds terrible. Yeah. Like, there's a couple moments in both More Than Meets the Eye and in the movie where he calls out to Ravage. Like, he just says Ravage when he's getting, when Ravage is, like, in a battle. It's like, oh, this, this robotic, like, 
the most robotic Decepticon has like love for his pets is yeah. kind of like what it's implying. And so that sort of like dichotomy to the character I think is so interesting and, and why he's more than just like Megatron's most loyal soldier. There's something else about him that's like mysterious and interesting. Yeah, it was written in there. That's that's I mean, yeah, it it's it is a, a husbander, if you will. He was like a falconer to these yeah. characters. Yeah, there was some shepherdy part of it that is all it's in there. And you don't have to, you don't have to interpret it. It's all in there. It's there. Yeah. Go on then, Bill, what's your list? All right. <clears throat> so my number five is Hook uh, from the Constructicons because Hook, they all had, I mean, I, I think by the time they voiced the Constructicons, they were already a couple of ranks deep into creating characters. So some of their voices sounded a little derivative. Hook, though, who I always thought, you know, Hook is the um, uh, the winch. He's the the uh, the, the grappler, gra- you know. Of the, the crane, he's the, yeah. Yeah, the crane, exactly. He was essentially the headpiece of Devastator. And he was not coincidentally the first uh, Constructicon I got, too. But the character of Hook had this great voice. He sounded like the world's biggest asshole professor at a stock university somewhere. He had this art, this this voice that was pompous. And he's the one that says no one would want to follow an uncharismatic bore like Soundwave. And I just thought that there was always something to him. First of all, the the Constructicons, like you said, Sky is a great invention. But I thought as characters, they did something that hadn't been represented in the show before. They were architects. They were builders. They were also wreckers and disaster makers, too. But his hook as their leader, I thought he had this great voice. It almost sounded like he could have been Fraser Crane. Uh, Quite literally, a Fraser Crane, if you will. So my number four... (laughs) <laughs> we should four. stop the podcast just so we can end on that. It's so perfect. Uh, Bill, sorry, Bill, can I stop you there? There's a beautiful little irony about the constructed guns because, like you say, in their individual forms, they're architects, they're builders. But because of a little glitch in the combiner matrix, when they form Devastator, their intellects are completely dumbed down. They don't combine as effectively as later combiners, such as yep. Menasaur and Bruticus, who are far more efficient, certainly Predator King. Because they were the first combiner robot, they, you know, they had an inherent flaw that meant the Devastator, whereas they were all individually architects and constructors, Devastator was all about just, he was kind of like the Hulk. He would just destroy things. And it was like, there was a beautiful sort of flip side irony to Devastator compared to the individual constructor cons. It just made him that much cooler. Yeah, he was pure id, which yes. was kind of always really interesting about that too. Uh, to digress for a second, I thought that the, the when they rolled out Devastator, which I actually did get, I won a gift certificate in a spelling bee in 1985 in the middle of Long Island that I used to buy Devastator. So that was one of the first like paydays that I hit back in the day. The, the, the fact that you had to um, attach forearms and fists and the head, and I felt a little cheated that, hey, you guys didn't build that into this thing. I have to like bolt on all these other pieces mm-hmm. to build a combiner out of it. Like It just didn't snap together the way you thought they would, but whatever, I'm being a nitpicker here. My number four choice is Thundercracker. And I mean, Thundercracker, I think, is the most unheralded of the three Decepticon Seekers. He had this cool power where Thundercracker was actually able to issue from his nose cone, I think it was like, you know, thousands and thousands of volts of electricity, which they never used in the show. But Thundercracker's file card had this really well-written quirk. Uh, Their personalities, again, as Bob Mm. Budiansky had written them. And I actually... Side note, I worked with Bob Budiansky when I was an intern at Marvel Comics in 95. I worked in the Spider-Man office, and Bob Budiansky was the group editor. So I actually got to know the guy uh, back in 95. But um, So he gave Thundercracker this great quirk, is that Thundercracker was the one Decepticon who was never totally sold on the yes. cause. 
Yeah, I right. love that about him. You know, it's like I oh, if I had if I had fucking Thundercracker out, I always thought he's 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 side eyeing. He needs to be convinced. You got to baby this guy every now and then. You got to reconvince him. You have to you have to you have to do a little whip to get him back on session. You know, Megatron would you know always have to convince him. Yeah, it was only his loyalty to Megatron that kept him on side. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the kind of depth that, like, again, Larry Hama, when he wrote all the, the G.I. Joe file cards, he constantly engaged in that sort of, like, personality quirks, where he would talk about a guy like Scrap Iron and said Scrap Iron had this great flaw, you know, any flaw that he had in this, the tiniest flaw, he was repelled by the, the, the imperfections. And, and they, they constantly, you know, kept Scrap Iron from doing any work because it was like he had this real obsessive compulsive syndrome. And I'm like, what the fuck business does any toy character have of this level of portrayal? And Thundercrack was the same way. It's like, why do I have a toy that needs to be convinced of the, the side that he's been working on? And yet I always love that about him. Plus the, the light blue paint job was great. And the the, the the sorry the beautiful thing, Bill, is in the Image comic series that came after the two thousand and two two thousand and three Dreamwave series. Image Comics fully incorporated Thundercracker's persona because he was the one that actually turned on Megatron and betrayed him. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I read a few of those issues too, and that was somebody remembered just the same way I did too. So fucking cool. It is cool. So the third one, I have Soundwave as my number three. Uh, so you can see where I'm going with the top two. By the way, this is a complete Decepticon list because pff, who the fuck needs Autobots for me? Soundwave is a great character. Everything you just guys just said, he's he's a pirate commander, a falconer, a robot. He's a dad. He's blue. He's got this monotone voice. He's got all these things. What I really love, the thing that embodied my childhood, and it comes from the movie, a incapacitated Megatron tells Soundwave, Soundwave, don't leave me. And what does Soundwave say to him? What does he say to him in return? As you command, Megatron, yeah. he doesn't say, yes, of course, mm-hmm. I will pick you up because I love you. He says, you are still alive. Mm-hmm. You are still issuing commands. I pick you up now because of technicality, because legally you are still the Viscount. You are still the Duke. And not that, you know, Soundwave's own dispassionate, completely bleached, you know, void of emotion delivery, you know, which Frank Welker knew he was doing the entire time. It, it just hammered in. It's like, of course, you write this curly cue into the script that it's like Soundwave doesn't give a shit about anybody, but he is a chaotic no, he's he's he. What is he? He's lawful evil. You know, there's just something about him where he's going to follow the rules until the end. And so when he has his chance to make a big play aboard Astrotrain, you know, he says, "Well, Megatron's literally you know, legally dead now, and so I should be the leader of the." You know, not for a single second before that would he think about trying to usurp Megatron. And with that, my number two is Starscream because I think Starscream and Megatron are also written like Greek myths, like Eurydice. And Morpheus, they're written like, you know, any two pairs from all of the great myths of of yore, because there is this antagonism to them that is so true. It's so inhabited. It's so lived in. But it's also so repeated. It is a relationship that any moment either of them could have terminated. You know, Starscream could have defected. He could have went somewhere else. He could have abandoned the cause. Megatron could have destroyed him. He could have put his boot on his neck and just popped off Starscream's head. But they decided to play it out like my fucking grandparents stayed married all the way until the day they were dead, even though they hated each other. (laughs) And there was something really authentic about the fact that it wasn't just the myth, but there was also this real psychology playing out. It did not hurt that you had Chris Lada 
who was the voice of Cobra Commander, giving a completely different line reading to Starscream than he did as Cobra Commander. But the way that Chris Lotta interplayed with at, with uh, Frank Welker, that is such a natural pairing. You know, it's, you're going to say it's not like vinegar and oil, not like what is it, water and oil. It's like fucking oil and oil. There's two things. They match so well together that, I, you know, I don't know two pairs in cartoons that haven't been written, uh, you know, as well as that. And naturally, because of the genius, the absolute genius of Frank Welker, it's a man who just every single time he opened his mouth up, he managed to invent something new. He just gave every line reading the same power uh, or more power than the one that had before it. The fact that the character was was modeled so incredibly. He was a gun back when you could actually do these things. But when you can actually sell a child a gun that was semi-realistic looking, Megatron has to be my favorite. I mean – not as a toy so much, but as an indelible bit of myth, as an indelible bit of of, of Western culture, from, from this this cartoon, from this movie, from the power, from the menace. I mean, he was like John. You said he was the smartest guy in the room. I really believe that. You know, there were on the boxes. You know, Optimus was called Autobot Commander. And Megatron was called Decepticon leader. And there's a difference. There's a difference between those two stations. You know, the commander is somebody who could be promoted, someone who could essentially, you know, rise from within the ranks to do. A leader is someone who takes it by charisma. He's like Mao. You know, that's somebody like Idi Amin. That is, that is a usurper. That is somebody who rules by fiat of power, and, by charisma. I mean, that's what Fuhrer means in German. That's why they called Hitler Fuhrer. <laughs> it is right, exactly. And I mean, it, you know, all these things you talk about these characters whatever tradition however however many traditions these characters were written out of uh you know they're just so indelible and i'm not saying that they weren't recreated that you didn't have these kind of relationships in x-men the animated series that steven universe doesn't do it that teenage Mutant ninja turtles didn't do it that batman the animated series so on and so forth however you know i i see there's just a great glowing emblematic version of all this mythopoeic western tradition uh, you know, inside, it, maybe it's secondhand, but I think it's all emblazoned there. All this, you know, Samuel Coleridge, all this freaking Chaucer, all this Shakespeare, all this, you know, all this great, all the pulp stuff. It could be, you know, or sci-fi. It's all in here, man. And I just, you know, I, all these actors who did these voices for, from top to bottom, and usually it's the same guy. It's Frank Welker. They made this possible. And it's, you know, yeah. I, I have to give it to the Decepticons in this one. Uh, I'm gonna. I think because we we had such Decepticon heavy lists, which is uh, only right and appropriate. But I think I'm gonna have to make a change that put Optimus as my number one. Um, oh yeah, okay. Because I think that that Peter that Peter Cullen voice, and I think the Autobots are like you know, war refugees fleeing a, a war for energy. The only way that those this band of like Volkswagen Beetles and ambulances could have even stood a chance against the Decepticon onslaught is because of Optimus Prime. So we wouldn't even have the show if it wasn't for Optimus and the the vo- vocal virtuosity of Peter Cullen. Yeah, fully agree. Guys, are we going to end this on a high or are we going to give any sort of time to the Transformers franchise that bloomed in 2007 with Michael Bay's film series? Uh, I am going to just merely say that I thought for the 07 film, it was... You know, devious genius to bring Peter Cullen back. Um, that was, I think, all they got. I think maybe Welker may have done a few voices of offside characters and maybe sound effects, but he didn't do a, a charismatic vocal performance the way he did in the TV show. I thought all the stuff that involved the Transformers themselves 
when the first time you see Optimus Prime, Jazz, and and Bumblebee transform in front of Shia LaBeouf, that stirred me. And and when he introduces himself, I really got a, a, a sense of deliverance from the TV show. That did move me. Um, the rest of the movie is a lot of Michael Bay trash, but I managed to divorce my brain from that and just strictly watch these characters in the one movie I would give them to be live action from what I saw as a cartoon. And I remember enjoying it quite a bit. And I'll say I have a very charitable feeling to the way in which they transformed, if, if, so to speak, the cartoon to live action, maybe in the most sensical way that you could, but also, I mean, they made some really bad mistakes narratively and, 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 and you know, sort of the atmosphere of the story. But I can't imagine you could make these cars that transform into robots look a whole lot different than the way they did. But I could be wrong about that. You know, I, with, the, with the original 2007 Transformers film, I remember quite liking it when I first saw it in the cinema. And then as time went on and as I gave it more thought, the overall design of the characters kind of played on me. And I didn't like the fact that so many of these Transformers were indecipherable from one another, whereas the, the characters in the cartoon were very distinctive. Throw in to that then, you've got all the nonsense with Shia LaBeouf and the, you know the, the the human characters, and the more I've watched the film, and the more the time has gone on, the less I've liked it. You know, going on to some of the sequels, though, you know, crikey, the 2007 film is, is Citizen Kane compared to Transformers: Revenge of the Fallen, which I think is one of the few times I've ever given a film a one out of ten on IMDb. It was a film that I nearly walked out of. It was so so bad, and then you know the, the third film, Transformers: Dark of the Moon, that was marginally better. Again, though, it was just a load of indecipherable noise and nonsense. You know, from that point onwards, I just tuned out. I had no further interest in the series. I did dip back into it with a recent Bumblebee film, simply because Adam Rakoff posted on Twitter a little clip of that amazing opening on Cybertron, which if the original 2007 film had taken the cue from that and made a film of that with that kind of more faithful sort of reinterpretation of the original characters, then I might have been more on board. But overall, I know it's made billions of dollars even, but it's not a franchise that I'm fond of in any way, if I'm honest. Yeah, I remember being very bored with the first one. Uh, I wanted to give the franchise a second chance, so I did. And honestly the seeing the second movie in theaters was one of the absolute worst theatrical experiences of my life. Um, I'm under the creature's so scrotum. <laughs> God, oh, Jesus. Yeah. So, but I like Bumblebee, but I, I avoided all transformers media, uh, release between those two films. Yeah. Um, but it did give us some humorous, uh, moments in the Shia LaBeouf written film Honey Boy, uh, which is an interesting cinematic self-portrait, if any of you want to go through a very, very different flavor of, of film than Transformers. So it gave us that. Mm. <laughs> Let's flip things back and just do your final thoughts on the Transformers franchise as a whole and what it means to you. Yeah, I'm, it just gave me, like, you, you know, a John Wayne a six-year-old could relate to. I... I you know, I'll always love it for that. I always love Optimus Prime for that. One of my best friends um, is also my coworker, and the first interaction we had outside of work that was like a designated hangout, 
as two human beings who are friends and not just coworkers was watching the Transformers of the movie. And so like, it's just something that I'm so grateful has been part of my childhood and that has not been, you know, stained by anything else. It's just only grown and I've been able to appreciate it more and more with time. Uh, you know, Transformers for me starts out as a toy becomes a cartoon, but then it zeroes out as the film. Um, Transformers the movie to me is the average and what I think of and what I thought of Transformers from 1986 onwards. So even though the brand had a lot of dip and diminution of quality in terms of toys and things that I didn't get on board with like Beast Wars and I'm not, I'm not slandering Beast Wars. The whole generation of people understand Optimus Primal, you know, Optimus Primal is a gorilla and not as a truck. And that's cool. That's fine. That's just not my, uh, that's not my prime. So this brand averages out to a movie and the movie to me was such a seminal piece of art in the way that somebody would pick up a copy of Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, 200 years ago, or, you know, they would pick up a John Carter, Warlord of Mars or Tarzan or, or HP Lovecraft. And they would be influenced by something so primal that, that tickled their imagination when they were at an age to be able to be reached. And Transformers, the movie became that. And I said this on the podcast, one of the very first podcasts I did with, with James Hancock, we did the GI Joe, uh, series, the franchise, and I referenced Transformers heavily at the beginning. I said, Transformers, the movie, taught me about scale. It taught me about pacing. It taught me about theme. It taught me about character. There were so many things I learned from watching this movie that I hadn't, I, maybe I, I had witnessed in other films, but I hadn't really observed. I hadn't really memorized. It hadn't really imparted to me that these are the things that storytelling sets out to do. And it became concretized with Transformers, the movie. So I owe it so much. Um, in terms of my internal meter, my my imagination was inspired by it. It became a and it became a you know it became a yardstick by which so many other things were measured and still are measured today. I don't think that there are any other pieces of my childhood which I keep on hand as as a, a blood having vivacious bit of tissue the way I do transforms the movie from back in '86. That's just how important this thing is to me, and by extension. Transformers then, uh, you know, becomes incorporated on that same level. It, uh, it's, it's it's important and it will transcend time and space for me. Same here, and I, yeah, I I can't think of anything as anywhere near as poetic as that, Bill. I appreciate well that. <laughs> I, I, I as much as I love animation, and I really do like I, I devour all sorts of like behind the scenes ephemera I've, i try and watch as much animation as i can so as as much nonsense as i've seen as much beautiful brilliant stuff as i've seen as many miyazaki films as i've seen whenever somebody says what's your favorite animated film the first image that comes to my head <laughs> is from transformers the movie <laughs> <laughs> you know it's just got so much isn't it it, it it's you know, in the words of Stan Bush, for all you kids out there, dare, dare to believe you can survive because you hold the future in your hand. What a fucking, what a, what, a, what a song. What a just, you know, it's hard to divorce nostalgia from objectivity for me. It's just something that's extremely special to me. I, I just always will love Transformers in some shape or form. Got no love at all for the later movies that followed, the Michael Bay films, but from 1984... So probably around about 1986-87, for me, it was one of the most important things in my life culturally. And yeah, and for that reason alone, it'll always be very special to me. Yep, agreed. 
Okay, so John, where can people uh, find you if they want to hit you up on social media for a chat? Uh, I am at Quasar Sniffer on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, I promote the buying of comic books uh, on my social media quite often. Um, if you're ever in central Pennsylvania, look up Comics Connection. That's comics with an X. Uh, you can find me there, and I will gladly recommend comics to you in person. Or you can just hit me up on social media, and I'll tell you what comics to read and what movies to see. It'll be a good time. Hey, he's he's underselling himself because he's a regular contributor to um... – Film 89, his pieces are in there. And John just wrote this incredible piece about the politics of Star Wars and whether or not it's political. So allow me to tout some of his work. He spent a lot of time writing. So give me give me that, grant me that at least. Well, th- you you humble me, Bill. Thank you very much for, for saying so. I, I oh, John, John's writing is just, it's a, it's a joy to read. And he is, just as you are, Bill, so eloquent. Just got an incredible way with words. And, you know, we're all just so grateful to, uh, you know, contributing to Film 89. Yeah, I agree. It's an honor to be part of it, you guys. Thank you. So I am uh, personally on Twitter at William Scurry. Um, I'm on YouTube. I do have, have done, and I'm doing in the process of doing a season two. I do this video essay series about film topics called American Caesar Salad. That is YouTube.com/slash/AmCaesar, and I also do a podcast. When I'm not traveling around the planet Earth, apparently, uh, which I had to take a couple of weeks off there for a while, I do a show with my friend Noah Tarno, a San Francisco-based quiz master, old friend of mine. We do a show called I Don't Get It, which you can look on Twitter. Actually, it's on SoundCloud. It's I Don't Get It podcast. And uh, we're on Twitter at Noah and Bill Show. Noah and Bill Don't Get It. Noah and Bill Show. That's our, that's our Twitter handle. Um, so, yeah, I'm all over the place talking about uh, movie topics, culture. I do Daily Cobra Commander every morning, too. That's a meme I put out. That's on Twitter at William Scurry. You can see all that good shit. Great. And you can find all of uh, Bill's and John's writing for Film89 and the rest of the guys at film89.co.uk. You can follow us all on Twitter and Facebook at Film89UK. And you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. Thank you to all our listeners and followers of the website. The last episode, the 1917 episode with Jacob Rivera, just pulled into just some fantastic feedback, some amazing download figures. And we are just so incredibly grateful. Please, we're kicking out this content free of charge for all you guys and girls. Please, if you could just find a couple of minutes to leave us a positive review on on Apple Podcasts, that would do us a heck of a lot of good. That's all we ask of you, but thank you so much for your support from the bottom of all our hearts. It just means so much to us, and we thoroughly enjoy you know, what we're doing and hope to be kicking out episodes on far more regular basis than we did throughout 2019. All I leaves it to say now is, as I usually say, uh, stay safe, stay happy, but more importantly... Stay classy. Stay classy. Why throw away our life so recklessly? <laughs> <laughs> We're out of here. <laughs>